0: On this episode of Snow the Goalie, we have an extended interview with Flyers Hall of Famer Dave Poulin. And let me tell you, folks, this was one of the best, most fun, uh, engaging interviews we've done. And if you're my age, you might have looked at, at the name and said, like, I don't know who this is or I don't know why I should care. Trust me, there are some great, great, great stories in this podcast. And uh, after the interview, we're going to get into the announcement that the NHL and the NHLPA have agreed To move on to what they're considering or calling Phase Two, it feels like we're in a Marvel movie. Uh, But Phase Two, we'll get into that, what it all means, and what it could mean for the return of hockey after the interview. But without further ado, let's get into the interview with Flyers Hall of Famer Dave Poulin.
1: Hi, my name is Alevin Young, coach of the Flyers.
2: Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Hulgren. Hi, I'm Matt Neskno. Hey, I'm Scott Lawton. Hi, I'm Joel Faraby. Hi, it's Derek Grant. Hi,
1: this is Bob Clark. Hey, hey, you're, you're right, listening right, to you. Snow, the goalie.
2: Snow the Goalie. 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 Snow the
1: Goalie. Snow the Goalie.
0: Oh, yes! Welcome in to Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast. The People's Podcast, The Player's Podcast, The Prognosticator's Podcast, Presidential Podcast, The Pediolite Podcast, The Pooleycast. We talked about this, Anthony. We wanted to give it a, a little personal spin. Yeah. And uh, our guest today is a Flyers Hall of Famer. Anthony, I think you could probably do an even better intro for our guest than I can because, and this is no offense, this is no offense, Dave, you played before my time, and so I don't want to give you any kind of disrespect because I don't have that live in the moment kind of uh, emotionally charged reaction to your play quite like my friend, Anthony does. Yeah, no. Give this man an introduction. We can
1: create whatever we want to create Then today, Anthony. We can do whatever we want to (laughs) do. Well, that's right.
2: That's right, David. So, but it is, you know, Russ was not alive. Well, at the very end of your career, I guess he was alive, but uh, during your time in Philly, but it was for me, I was a teenager. I grew up with with you and your teams, right? So this was that was my hockey. Um, you know, that's how I, how I learned to love the sport was was following the Flyers in the in the mid '80s. Um, so I have a lot of great memories, and I think that when when we go through it, I, as I planned a lot of the questions for today, I was like reflecting back, like God, I remember exactly where I was when this happened. It was it's kind of crazy. Um, so we really do appreciate you hopping on, and 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 the first question that. I always ask all of our guests is to tell us a little bit about your hometown uh, where you were born, because a lot of guys who play in the league are from some small little Canadian town and people in Philadelphia have no idea where, where, where these towns are like. So you're for, you were born in Timmins, Ontario. Tell me about Timmins because it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little town I, in the research that I did.
1: Well, first off, Anthony and Ross, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys today. I, I have a daughter in Philadelphia. I still get down there quite often and, you know, had great, great memories of the area. And it's been the one, I guess, the one. There, there will prove to hopefully be a few more blessings from this pandemic and this strange, strange time. But looking back, uh, you know, at my career, I've never done it to the extent I'm doing it right now. I've never looked back at old games and they're being played in the cities I played in. they are being played on national TV up here in Canada. Uh, I don't think I've got this much air time, I haven't got this much air time in decades. <laughs> and so it's been fun to look back and, <clears throat> excuse me, to go all the way back, um, I am from Timmins and the easiest way I first describe it, it's about 600 miles north of Toronto, in the Great White North. And when I'm describing it to people I say, well Santa Claus actually came up to our place from the North Pole. Like <laughs> most times he's coming down from the North Pole, he came up to see us in Timmins. And I wasn't a hockey player up there. I was a figure skater. And I was up there until I was almost nine years old. And, you know, I played out on the outdoor rinks as a youth, but never played a formal, you know, in a formal hockey league or with a formal hockey team. And a couple of years back, I was inducted into the Timmins Hall of Fame, and we went up for the induction ceremony. And... I guess when the seventh or eighth person told me that they coached me or their dad coached me or the brother, I stopped telling people I didn't play there because <laughs> it was like, okay, we'll just let it go wherever it went. And yeah. you know good memories of the town, a gold mine town, a pretty significant town in the north, about forty thousand people, and great outdoor ice. I mean, the outdoor ice for us was early October until through Easter. you know and they uh, they would actually take on the lakes in town. Gillies Lake was one, and they would build multiple rinks. So you'd have boards, lights, and everything right on the lake, and then have each of the little respective rinks. And I was a figure skater. I skated with a girl who went on to be a Canadian champion. And I think my first pairs in in a uh carnival formula was when I was maybe five years old, just turning five years old. And uh and was a great skater and right from day one, from the first time I played my you know, went out to play my first hockey game, I could skate. I had edges, I could skate. But when I did play my first game, I actually still had a pair of figure skates on. And I'd love to tell you there were boys figure skates, but they were actually <laughs> girls figure skates that I inherited from my sister that my dad had put black shoe polish on to make boys. And during the first game, you know, when that blue black shoe polish starts to come off and the guys realize you have girls skates on, that does not go over that well <laughs> at all. Um, so then, you know, transferring in my youth hockey was played in the, in the West end of Toronto.
0: I, I want to get into the skate thing. I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up like it did too, because usually see Anthony has his, his well guided, you know, outline of the questions and I'm the agent of chaos. So I want to, I want to go on the skate thing for a second, because <laughs> I, I don't think people understand the differences between figure skates, hockey skates, and then, uh, like the speed skating. I remember the the last Winter Olympics. There was a, a graphic that showed them and and the crazy long blades of the speed skate. So, from your vantage point, now, Grant, you were you were young, so it's not quite like you're a a high school uh, college player going out wearing your sister's skates. But could you explain to people any kind of difference between what it would be like to play with a figure skate? Why why that is so much different from a from a hockey
1: skate? Well, I think the big difference is the actual curve on the blades, the bottom of the blade. um, I think a a flatter blade on the figure skate and then the toe pick at the front. So literally five or six picks right up at the front on the edge that would separate, you know, the style of, of skate blade, a much higher boot, a boot that came up a little different lace configuration, um, cross lace, you know, with a little clip on it. Um, you know, and I never really, I don't know that my skating style was totally defined by my figure skating. I think in the end, somehow, it was my edge control that had me skating like I did. I had a very unique skating style. I didn't skate with my feet right underneath my body. I skated with my feet out. And, guys, I was actually on a how not to skate film. And it was great. I have, the, I have the video and it was out of a prep school in Boston, and they were showing how this player doesn't bring the skate back to the center point and doesn't get full extension and therefore will never be able to create good speed. And it's awesome because the two clips they use, both clips, I'm on a breakaway in the Boston garden. I'm like, oh, wait a second. Where are the other nine guys? If I'm that slow and I can't, create speed but what I did was I had a very short push and a short you know arc but I was really reliant on my edges being terrific and the, and the skate guys you know Sudzy Settlemeyer and, and Kurt Munt when I was in Philly I got my skates done virtually every day literally every day my skates had to be razor sharp Mark Howe his feet came right back to the center of his body. He was a perfect skater and had a very flat line on his blade and he'd get his skates done like once a month. I had to have mine done every day. So totally different styles. My feet very spread out, very short stride, but obviously power and explosion. It's did crazy. the uh,
0: did the equipment guys give you hell for, for making them, uh, you know, keep the, the skates so sharp every, every day?
1: No, you know what? They were pretty good. I was pretty good to the trainers. I looked after the trainers and, uh, like every game, when I came in, my skates would be perfect. I used four rolls of tape a game, and there'd be a little round stone that I used to clean out the center track. That'd be in the middle. Um, new set of laces, four rolls of tape right in front of my skates every game. So the boys looked after wow. me, and I think it was arguably, at least it was consistent. They knew what I wanted, and they knew how deep a, um, a hollow I used. I used one of the deepest hollows, and so if you picture. You picture the bottom of the skate blade actually being two sides with a hollow in the middle. I used a really, really deep hollow, whereas Mark Howell would use a perfectly flat hollow. That's,
0: that's awesome. a lot of great, like, pulling the curtain back kind of stuff. That's- there you go. We're getting technical Thanks, here. No, no, but that's good. See, that's uh, – listen, every, every interview we do with people, we always want to try to pull back the curtain on – some kind of aspect, you know, executives versus coaches versus players. Like there, there are certain things that we really like to get in the nitty gritty in on. And, and that I think is some excellent insight and very, well, the other thing
1: I did, Russ, I jammed them in. And so I wore a nine and a half shoe and I wore a six and three quarters skate. And so they were really, really jammed in. And yes, I did used to break toes, you know, quite regularly. And, but once I got them in the skate, It was so tight and I didn't like any slippage at all. And it it actually felt like my foot was falling asleep right away. I took them off between every period. But I do remember Paul Coffey had hit me in the toe and he split the bone on my toe like vertically. Now I was still playing. You get a little, you know, you get a little freezing in there and you get that toe in the skate. Once it was in, it was fine. But one night I hadn't gotten frozen yet. I was in the stick room. I had my flip-flops on, and turned the other way, and Rick Tockett dropped a dozen sticks on that broken toe. Oh. And it was as Fred Flintstone as you, it was like the just huge red blowing up toe. And, and we froze it and got it in a skate and went ahead and played, so yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit crazy. I became so dependent on that tight fit. I wanted that so snug and so tight that there was no slippage at all when that foot was out away from my body.
0: I, I want to go a little bit more inside, inside baseball, inside hockey on this Go ahead, Russ. I have nothing it, to do. Listen, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so when, when Peter Forsberg played in, in Philly, part of what it seemed like kept knocking him out of the lineup and the thing that we heard after every game was there was an issue with the boot. There, there was always like some kind of, of an issue that he had with it. And and I think a lot of people just kind of kept saying, you know, you got to play through it. You have to figure it out, like do a better job equipment guys, figure it out. How distracting can it be as a player to play at your best? If you feel like there is an issue with your skate.
1: Well, you're a craftsman and that's a tool. And just as any, you know, a surgeon's going in with a scalpel and, you know, a, a, a finishing carpenter is going in with his tools that's a tool for you and it has to be perfect and and some guys are really really finicky about them and some guys much less so and you know I was someone that I was pretty particular about my skates because that was arguably you know the thing I needed the most other guys may have been their stick i mean some guys some guys had their own tools when it came to working on their sticks you know the wooden sticks and they'd have blow torches and rasps and they'd have sandpaper and you know everything was was a real art. I wasn't as particular with my sticks, but with the skates, they had to be perfect. And I I always thought about Forsberg and how he was such a powerful skater, and the power would just compound the issue. I'm sure you know with the ankles and the and the and the foot issues that he did have.
2: All right. Am I allowed to get back to this now? Go Rob? ahead, okay. Andy. Okay, all right, thanks. There we go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> got we you get... go. Your, got your questions in. All right, good. <laughs>
0: yeah, I feel good. I'm just going to sit back now. Thanks, Dave.
2: <laughs> so, Dave, you mentioned, um, you know, you started playing just outside of uh, Toronto when you were young, but you didn't play major junior. Um, so what kind of what kind of hockey were you playing before you decided to go off to play at Notre Dame? Because you, you actually went to Notre Dame, I guess, uh, a year later than most – Um, students. I
1: think you were close to 20 years old when you started there. Right. I was a 19-year-old freshman. Uh, So, just a little bit different path growing up. And there's a little twist here of Philadelphia Flyerdom in the middle of it because I was really tiny growing up. And, you know, so I played, started in house league as a nine-year-old, and each year played in a better league growing up. And eventually, know, by the time I was 13 years old, I was playing in the best league in the city of Toronto. Uh, the MTHL at the time, Metro Toronto Hockey League is now the GTHL. And we had double A was the highest level. And I was playing double A. Same left winger and same right winger for five years. And we progressed up through. And at each level, I would be told, look, you know, we know you're a really good player, but you're really, really small. And I'd be the smallest player in the league. And my driver's license, guys, at 16, my first driver's license, five three one ten. So I wasn't just small, I was tiny Yeah, and you know, late growth spurt in 11th grade, 12th grade, and to the point where years later, you know, when people would turn on the TV, they'd be like, well, that can't be the same Dave Poole we know because he was so small. And I, I did get, I got the growth part of it and then got caught kind of right between the squeeze Uh, in 1978, 79, 80, the NHL went from a 20-year-old draft to an 18-year-old draft. And so all of a sudden now, they went from 12 rounds to six rounds and compressed three years into one. And from that sequence, that's Timmy Kerr's non-drafting, Ron Flockhart not being drafted. A lot of good players simply weren't drafted by pure numbers. Now, I wouldn't arguably have been drafted I might have been drafted after my freshman year at Notre Dame but you know I was never going to play major so it was not uncommon for a kid to play tier two at 18 years old because he could have had still two years of major junior after it almost like a 16 year old playing tier two now and so not that unusual and then just fortuitous timing of life in that i was playing for a really good tier two junior team here in toronto the dixie beehives beehive corn syrup and a legendary team and guys their rink was so tiny it made the boston garden look like an olympic ice sheet (laughs) like it was a legendary little city rink tiny little rink yeah it was terrific and so this kid beside me he kept getting these college letters and one day he got a letter from notre dame and a big gold nd embossed in the corner it was real fancy and And I said, Billy, are you going to use that? And he said, no, I'm going to Michigan State. I said, can I have that letter? And he said, sure. So I took the letter and had an information sheet. and I filled out the information sheet and wrote a nice cover letter and said, thank you for your interest in me as a hockey player. Of course, they had no idea who I was. (laughs) And that's what started the recruiting process. And back then, recruiting was all word of mouth. And right about the same time I fired the letter off to – Notre Dame a bunch of schools were coming out to see because of Billy he was a straight A student and they were coming out to see him and so then it started to generate interest almost simultaneous to Notre Dame and I remember the first Ivy League school to call was Cornell and they of course said you know the big thing was are you talking to anybody else and I said well yes I'm talking to Notre Dame They were talking they weren't the, talking to, me, weren't talking there, to you <laughs> but I was talking to them <laughs> and so that sort of started the ball rolling and eventually I went into my my high school guidance counselor and I'd always played for club teams you didn't play for your school you played for clubs and so no one at my high school even knew I was an athlete and I went into my high school guidance counselor and I had this stack big stack of of letters and apps and he said what's all that and I said well you know I, I need some help here I need some guidance I was raised by a single father early guys and and you know he hadn't He didn't have a high school graduation and became a very successful businessman uh, in the heavy equipment industry. And but no, nobody in my family had been to college. I had no experience at all. And I said, I have this list of colleges I've kind of got to sort through. And so my guidance counselor's looking at me. He's looking down and he said, "Well, you got to be kidding me here." And he said, "This is ridiculous." You know, you've got Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Notre Dame and Michigan and Michigan State and Boston University. He goes. You think you can go to these places,
2: and I and I laughed.
1: I said, "Well, actually, I can go to any one of them I want to, and they're <laughs> going to pay for me too." And so he was very helpful through the process. And at that point, you were allowed six recruiting trips, and uh, and I at that point, guys, I had become a really good player in the city, and, and you know, I was really tearing up Tier Two Junior A uh, first year I played it, but I was really starting to tear it up. And so you were allowed six recruiting trips. And I decided to pick three in the East and three in the Midwest. And I, so I picked Michigan, Michigan State, and Notre Dame. And then I picked Boston University, Cornell, and Clarkson. And all you know hockey powers in the East. And, and I went to Notre Dame first. And I got on campus on a Saturday just before noon. It was January. It was absolutely freezing out. I mean, there was snow on the ground. And there was no one on campus it didn't feel like. And it was just before noon. And then we walked into the first dormitory. And I heard a roar go up. And then, you know, it calmed down. Then another roar. And I'm like, what's going on here? Well, the basketball team was playing on the road against North Carolina. And that was the Final Four basketball team. Digger Phelps took to the Final Four. Actually lost to Penn that year, I believe.
2: Right, seventy-five. Final Four.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and so – I thought, well, how cool is this that the whole school is watching this game? And then I went to the hot game that night and I called home on Sunday morning and I said, Dad, I'm going to cancel the other five trips. I said, You know, they've offered me a full scholarship. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to play in the NHL. I want to go to the best school I possibly can and get an education. And I can't imagine there being a cooler place than Notre Dame. I don't know if you guys have ever had an opportunity to be on campus, but it's Down a cool Jesus. place. Yeah. It's a cool place. It yeah. is. And, and I wanted a smaller school, and that surprises people that Notre Dame is a small school, but 8,000 undergraduate students. I mean, everybody thinks of it as a 50,000-student school. It's not at all. It's not, yeah. And it's a very collegial, very community-based school. Um, 85% of the kids still live in dorms on campuses to this day. So it was a unique place, and, and, and I made my decision that day to go to Notre Dame.
2: So you, come, you play four years at Notre Dame do very well there, and then there's, st- there's still no interest, I guess, from the NHL, and you go off to Sweden to play, and I guess the story there is that the coach there was also a scout for the Flyers. Um, right. As, as that that kind of is your, your, um, your way into the NHL, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, no thoughts of playing pro, although you know, my, my college career was sort of broken up a little bit. I had a great freshman year. And that freshman year I played against all of those 80 Olympians. And we actually beat the university of Minnesota three out of four times that year. Okay. We had a lot of kids on Minnesota from our team. And then my sophomore year, early in the year, uh, I, I got meningitis on campus and, and it really beat me up physically. I didn't play, I played a lot less games that year, but it really beat me up physically for, for the better part of two years. But it was also a blessing in that I had to stay for summer school. So that, my sophomore year that summer, I stayed on campus at summer school and started lifting with the football team. And it changed everything I thought about conditioning, everything I thought about lifting. It became just a strength for me. I changed my body type and then went on and had a great senior year. And in January, December of my senior year, a strange call one morning to see if I wanted to interview, uh, at the placement center on campus. And, you know, I I hadn't really thought about work or anything and it was Procter and Gamble in the international sales department. And, you know, in the early eighties, if you got into the international sales department at P and G, that was a big job coming Mm -hmm. out of college. And so I thought, well, I'll go through the process. And I did, and I, I got the job. And so, you know, by late January of my senior year, I had this great job and, you know, I'm looking at it and I, this is 1982 guys. 34 grand a year company car expense account bar soap and laundry products international sales I mean it was like I was on the path you know there we go yeah it was great and so went through graduation and so we're June now and got a call right out of the blue from Ted Sater and Ted Sater went on to be a Flyers assistant coach and coach as a head coach in the NHL with the Rangers the Buffalo Sabres and um he was coaching in sweden at the time and he was also scouting for the flyers and you know he said and you know come over and play for a year and talk to procter and gamble i did and they said well you can play you know hockey in europe for a year that'll be great for your international sales career and i went over and, and never looked back i went to a small town called Engelholm in the southern part of sweden and you know, it's funny how you look back now. It wasn't the Elite Series. It was Division One, And they had relegated from Division Two up to Division One, And they didn't bring their import back for off-ice reasons. He had led the league in scoring. So I went into to their Division One team and had been married three days and, you know, taking a new wife over to a tiny little town in the southern part of Sweden. And I remember the coach sitting me down saying, okay, well, you have to lead the league in goals. And no one had ever said that to me. And I thought, well, I'm not really a goal scorer. And so now I've got to go out and lead the league in goals. And I just had a magical year. Like my first game, we played against one of the best teams in the country, I got a hat trick, never looked back. And by Christmas, he was sending my name in on every scouting report he submitted for the Flyers. I didn't even know it at the time. And so coming out of it, the opportunity came to go to Portland, Maine, I walked in there with my bag over my shoulder and my sticks. You know, No one knew who I was. And at that point, the AHL teams used to load up for the playoffs. And they would bring back players from Europe who most of them had played in the NHL. And that year, they brought seven or eight guys back um, to that main Mariners team. It was a very young team. And they were making a run. And, you know, I was another component. I was the only one who hadn't played in the NHL or AHL that they brought back. And so I played 16 games in Portland for Tommy McVee. and actually, you know, another, after I think my sixth game or seventh game, my wife hadn't come, she had gone back to Chicago and, you know, I had another job offer, a good job offer in Chicago. And, you know, I went into Tom McVee. I think, was, I think I played six or seven games was really starting to play well in the American league. And I said, you know what? I just don't think this is for me. Uh, I'm going to go home. I've got a really good job offer in Chicago, but thanks a lot. You know, I tried playing pro hockey. It was really great. And Tommy looked at me in an old gruff voice, and he just said, you're quitting for the wrong reasons. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I don't know why you're quitting, but it's not the right reason. And I said, I don't understand. And he said, no one that plays with the passion you play with would tell me they don't want to be a pro hockey player and you know it was an interesting thing it, you know and along the way certain things changed my life and and that was one of them i mean flat out that was one of them and i went home and got my wife and brought her back i played nine more games and uh got called up on april fool's day it was so next april to the last, last game of the year right in yeah, toronto two games left yeah so it's april 1st i'm in duffy's pancake house in portland maine phone rings 8 30 in the morning you know, Duffy answers the phone behind the counter. He says, uh, Dave, it's Keith Allen from the Flyers. And you're like, yeah, April Fool's happy. <laughs> <laughs> he says, no, 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 it's Keith Allen. I said, really, Duffy? And he said, it is. So I said, Mr. Allen. He said, Dave, we won't, we're we calling you up. You're going to play tomorrow night in Toronto. But we want you to play tonight in New Haven first. <laughs> so I've got a bus from Portland, Maine, down in New Haven, Connecticut. And guys, that night. No one got within 10 feet of me. I was not letting anybody, you know, even touch me. And all our members get through this game. You are going to the NHL. And got up early the next morning and flew, you know, by myself. Now, I had never been to a training camp. I didn't know one single player on the team, not one single person. And I'm walking into Maple Leaf Gardens. You know, the first time I walked into Maple Leaf Gardens, I saw Bobby Orr play as a rookie. And, you know, I'm watching. It's like this magical place. And, uh, and I walk into the building. I fly up to Toronto. The morning skate's probably just ended. I don't even know where to go. I go to the front door. I have my hockey bag and my sticks. I'm asking an usher, hey, where's the locker room? He's looking at me like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember going to the, to the pregame meal as it wound down. Daryl Sittler, my boyhood hero, was a Philadelphia Flyer. He came into the meal. You know, nobody really said much to me. Um, my roommate, um, this, this dearly departed Bunny Larocque, didn't even come back to the room in the afternoon. I have no idea what he had going on. So I'm alone. I, you know, it's an 8 o'clock game, so you got a long afternoon. And I remember going in that night and, and looking at that jersey. I was number 34 in my first two games. And looking at the name on the back and, and just thought, I'm playing in the NHL. This is crazy. And uh, the first – and back then, behind the benches in Toronto and in Montreal, there was no glass. And the fans would actually walk right behind the bench. And so Bob McCammon was the coach, and he would lean and talk to the people in the stands. And so – You know, he's leaning on this railing. He's talking to people behind him. People are walking across behind him, back and forth. And we took a penalty, I think, the first shift of the game. And he said, well, kid, let's see if you can play. Go kill the penalty. I thought, oh, my God. So my first shift was shorthanded, which maybe was fitting for my Flyers career. Yeah. And then then about three minutes into the game was my second shift. And Daryl Sittler pulled up just inside the blue line on the far side. And threw the puck across right onto my tape, and I just fired it up and under the crossbar on Mike Palmatier, and uh, had my first NHL goal. And then had a shorty in the second period with Ilka Sinisalo, and and you know, guys, it was so crazy. It was it was just an absolute fairy tale. I hadn't signed a contract. I was on an amateur tryout offer, and and I get on the so where, where do you sit on the bus? I don't know. I just <laughs> kind of walk down. I sit down. Where do you sit on the plane? It's a charter. So I walked down and, and I don't even know who guys are. You know, I'd been in college in Indiana for four years. I didn't watch pro hockey. I'd been in Europe for a year. So for five years, I hadn't really seen any NHL hockey. And so I walked down the plane and I think, oh, my God, am I going to sit in someone's seat? And I see Daryl Sittler sitting on an aisle. So I sit down across from him and... um I don't know whether I'm supposed to introduce myself. He's insisted on my first goal. Like, hey, do you remember me? I'm number 34. <laughs> and, uh, so here's the story I told Daryl Sittler that night. I leaned over. I didn't know whether to call him Mr. Sittler. And I said, so, so Daryl, um, you know, I, I lived in Mississauga where you lived. You go like, Oh yeah, really? Oh yeah. Um, uh, so when you beat the Islanders in 77, you know, I was in 11th grade and, and uh, a bunch of my buddies and I went up to the airport to meet the team. He's like, really? And I said, yeah. And there were 10,000 people at the airport that year. They upset the Islanders. I said, so, so then I said to my buddies, my three buddies, I know where Daryl sitter lives. Let's go to his house. So sits looking at me at this point, going, really? I go, yeah. So, you know, we, we flew back to your house and, and we got in the front lawn and, yeah we had a case of beer and we were sitting on the case of beer on your front lawn he goes that was you you were those kids <laughs> i said i said yeah did did you not know we were going to play together i i didn't know why you didn't invite us in i didn't know whether you didn't know i was going to be your teammate or not so yeah four eleventh 11th grader sitting on his front lawn in a case of beer the guys were great the whole team came back to his house so we hit the jackpot you know we're high-fiving guys walking up the driveway and and eventually, you know, somebody came out and said, "Okay, guys, time to go home." But uh, so that's how I introduced myself to Sittler after he'd already assisted on my first NHL goal.
2: That's fantastic. That's a great, great. story. What a great that's story! A tremendous story. Um, so, so then, so I, I guess then, obviously, they liked you enough that you, they signed you. Um, going yeah, into yeah, so another weird story right?
1: though, Anthony. Another weird story because now I've played. So the next night. They're gonna finish up against the Islanders who are defending cup champions. Right. And I was playing left wing and they said, just shut down number twenty-two. Well, I knew number twenty-two was really good. His name was Mike Bossy. Mike Bossy. <laughs> For you <laughs> young guys out there, Russ. And, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and, and we win the game and, and Lindberg played another really good game, which was really significant. And uh they when I was in Portland, my wife had sat beside this guy at a game who was a young player agent, who'd played for Portland, then gone to Harvard Law School, and now he was a young player agent. And so I had de facto hired Brian Burke as my player agent at that point. And, you know, he was just starting out in the business. And, and my wife really liked him. And some of the guys were using him as their agent. So they had to sign me to an NHL contract on the Monday I was on an amateur tryout offer in order to use me in the playoffs. And, and so, you know, Brian and I don't really know each other. And he said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and get you a one-way contract. You played really good on the weekend and no one got one-way contracts at that point, guys, first round draft picks didn't get one-way contracts. Everything was a two-way deal. And he said, but, you know, they're really panicking playing against this Rangers team and they love your speed. So I'm going to try and talk him into a a one-way contract. So my first contract was a one-way deal. Wow! And plus he got those two games encased as the first year. So I had another year on my pension and I was in the second year of my deal going into my first full year in the NHL. And so it was a real, you know, a real fortuitous note. And then I walked in to practice on the Monday probably, or the Tuesday, and there was a number 20 on my helmet. And so they had made the decision. So those types of things don't seem like a big deal, but 34 wasn't a real number back then. 20 was a real number, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then we went on and we were upset, huge upset, you know, and that Rangers swept us. And and I led the team in scoring actually in the playoffs and uh, and never looked back.
2: So 83-84, your first full season. Um Bob McCammon, who, who, uh, you know, fans don't look fondly back on the McCammon years, but actually was probably a pretty, pretty good hockey guy. Um, decides to put you together with uh, with Prop and Kerr. I think that was the first year uh, that the three of you were together. You set a franchise record at the time; it's been broken mm-hmm. since. But for most points as a rookie with seventy six, uh, you finished fourth in the Calder voting. Um, but then there is another bad playoff. Scenario. I think it was uh, Washington that year you guys got it swept was. by. Um, and that leads to the big changes, right? That leads to uh, Clarkie becomes GM, Keenan becomes coach, Sittler gets traded, you become the captain. Can you just take us through that whole – I mean, it seemed like a lot of turmoil at the time, but maybe it was – I mean, obviously as it turned out, it turned out to be the right decisions all the way around. But can you just kind of take us through what was that like after that 83-84 season?
1: Yeah, I'm going to take you to the start of the 83-84 season, Anthony, because it was a significant piece. Um, You know, when we had lost after that very brief first five games, uh, they wanted to send me back to Portland, Maine, to finish the American Hockey League playoffs. And I got all packed up and ready to go back, and, and they didn't send me back. They couldn't send me back because I'd signed a contract after a certain date. So I'm sitting in Philadelphia before my first full season, 83, 84. And I had to buy a car. I'd been in Europe and, you know, I had no car. And so I called the flyer's office and I said, could someone help me buy a car? And they said, what do you, what kind of car do you want? I knew I wanted a specific type of car. And so they said, well, you know, I think, I think Bob Clark has something to do with a dealership that sells that kind of car. And so I thought, Oh my God, can I actually call Bob Clark? I've been his teammate for five games and ask him to help me buy a car. (laughs) And and the, you'll understand why I'm telling you this. And so, I called him. I didn't know. I didn't know what to say. I honestly, didn't know whether I had to introduce myself or. And and I said, you know, I, I'm interested in, in this type of car. He goes, okay, I'll meet you at the dealership tomorrow night, Tuesday night. We walk in, and yeah, I've never bought a car. And and Clarky walks in. He says to the dealer, turn the card over. He's playing wholesale. Um, he doesn't need anybody to co-sign for him. He's going to be on the team next year. And um. So that's it. And I'm just looking, I'm like, oh my God. But then he said something to me that that really became one of my the life-altering things. And he said, What are you doing this summer? And I said, I've no idea. And he said, Stay here and train. I said, Really? He said, Stay here and train with me. Now, I had just spent 10 days with Bob Clark, played five games. Why is he asking? You know, a 24-year-old kid who's just tiptoed into the league, uh, 20, maybe 23 at the time, and to stay and work out with him. Now, you know, I remember saying to my wife, this is ridiculous. This is too good of an offer to pass up. I'm from Toronto. You're from Chicago. We both went to Notre Dame. Where are we going to go anyway? So he said, sublet one of the other players' homes and stay and work out with me. And so I did. I sublet Lindsey Carson's home. And I stayed and I worked out with Bob Clark that summer, six days a week, guys, two and a half hours a day in the gym, ran five miles Monday through Friday, eight miles on Saturday. And Clark and I became very, very close friends. Years later, you know, was he looking for someone to push him through his last couple of years? Sure he was. I didn't know that. All I know was I was getting this unbelievable opportunity to train with Bob Clark. And he was so far ahead of his time in training, and so, you know, he and I had become really good friends. So now, take us forward to that, the end of the '84 season. We're actually on a, on a sailing trip with three couples: Bob and his wife, myself, and my wife, and, and his closest friend and his wife. And Clarky takes us to the end of the dock the first morning and says, "Hey, uh, I'm going to retire when we get back." I'm like, "Really?" And he said, yeah, I'm going to become general manager and vice president. And I'm like, okay. Wow. (laughs) And here's this kid who just finished the rookie year on a sailing trip for 10 days with you. (laughs) And so the first day, you know, and now I will say the person with us wasn't, was a captain who had been through Annapolis. So he didn't know how to sail. We had a 50 foot sailboat out there. Clark, he didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. And so we set anchor that first day and uh, at three o'clock and we had our first cocktail party press conference. Bob sat on one side and the five people sat on the other side. And his friend said, made the announcement, Bob Clark has been hired as the general manager and vice president of the Philadelphia Flyers. Are there any questions? My wife pipes in and says, I'll go first. What makes you think you're qualified to run an NHL team? You've got no formal education, you've got no training, you've got no experience. This is a multi-million dollar operation. What makes you think you're qualified? And I'll sit there going, <laughs> you do realize that's my boss, right? he so asked the question every day for ten days. That was the first question. It became the first question of the press conference. I believe that was the very first question of the press conference that Clarkie was asked. <laughs> and so it was a time of huge change, guys. Mike Keenan came in. Um, you know, I was, the, I was, well, I wasn't named captain yet, but uh, huge changeover in the team. That was the kids, Ronnie Sutter. You had uh, Peter Zezel, Derek Smith, and Rick Talkett on that team, traded for Murray Craven. And the captaincy thing, we were at the, maybe the Knights of Columbus or the big kickoff luncheon. And Daryl Sittler was going to be named captain that day. It was two days before the season started. And I remember someone walking across the stage saying something to Clarkie during it. Because we were all sitting at tables out with the fans in the audience. And Sit wasn't named captain. We, we bust back to the practice rink to go home. And I remember them calling Sit in and, and they traded Daryl Sittler to Detroit for Murray Craven and Joe Patterson. And, you know, I got home and a couple hours later, my phone rang and it was Keenan. He said, could you come back to the rink? And I went back to the rink and he said, we're going to name you captain. And, you know, I played one full year in the league. I mean, it was, it was unbelievably awing. Like it was like, are you kidding me? And you know we had some good vets on that team, and, and you know Brad Marsh had already been a captain at a young age in Calgary, and guys like Brad McCrimmon and Mark Howe, and you know there were there were a lot of good candidates on that team, and a lot of good leadership on that team, and and at first, quite frankly, I really struggled with it, and and I learned that I was following Bob Clark, not replacing Bob Clark, because he didn't replace Bob Clark, right? And Clarky became had become such a good friend, and continued to be a good friend and a great mentor for me as a captain and, and the key to me, right from day one, like it was really hard. I struggled out of the gate. My first couple months were tough because I was trying to do everything and be everyone and and was the leadership guys around me, the guys I mentioned and, you know, Timmy Kerr became a real good friend. And, and, but, but during that first year, you know, um, he was the one that wanted to play with me. Timmy was a centerman. And Prop and I kill penalties together, so we're playing together on a line. And I wasn't an overly offensive guy. I never viewed myself that way. And Timmy would grab me in little skating drills, and he'd say, skate with me, do, do this passing drill with me. And he'd say to Bob McCammon, watch us. We're, we're really good together. We really have chemistry. We really have chemistry. He was always lobbying to play with me. And he was playing center at the time, so they moved him over to the wing. And then we just had such chemistry as a line. We really did. And I played together with those two guys for the better part of five or six years, and and I think Tim Kerr is a legitimate Hall of Fame player, guys. He's he's one of two players who's had four consecutive fifty goal seasons who's not in the Hall of Fame, and the other one's Alexander Ovechkin. Wow! And and he holds three NHL records, including thirty four playoff goals in a se- or thirty four power play goals in a season. There are teams that don't score thirty four power play goals in a season. Yeah, and so. You know, it was just – those years were great for me playing with those two guys and, you know, um, just such a comfort level on the ice of knowing where each other was. And Proppy and I had that whole penalty killing thing going with Brad McCrimmon and Mark Howe. And and then, you know, in future years, Ron Hextall was a big part of that group as well.
0: Dave, I, I want to uh, go off the rails again really quickly about uh, about Bob. We had him on the show just over a year ago. And one of the things that he kept coming back to, and our video guy uh, ended up clipping all of these things together. He talked about beer a lot uh, when we sat down with him. And one of the things that he said this is was- Bob Clark you're this talking is Bob about. Bob Clark, yeah. yeah. He said that uh, he likes, he, he said he wasn't so much a fan of fishing as going out, casting a line, and just drinking some beer. And then he was like, I, I never actually want to catch anything because I don't want to take it off the line. So take me back then. And I don't know the last time you've gone out on a boat with, with Bob and and maybe if you've had a couple, but what, what did those kind of trips look like? I mean, was Bob Clark, a guy who would, you know, just have, have one, you know, he would, he'd sip it slowly. He would nurse that beer for, you know, a couple.
1: (laughs) Well, I can tell you, here's the way it worked. We would anchor and we were really good sailors. We weren't Gilligan. Okay. We were really good sailors. And we would set anchor and we'd have the first cocktails would always be our press conference. Cause they were focused and we didn't drink when we were out, you know, we were sailing and, and I was the labor. by the way, Clark, he did nothing, nothing. <laughs> that bandana on his head. And the other guy was a captain and he was a great big guy. He was, You know, he was uh, like a Jersey state trooper, just a huge, big man. And, and the, the girls were cosmetic in terms of, their labor I was the labor on the boat so the first thing was the press conference that I mentioned and we'd have our cocktails during the press conference and then the guys would go fishing and you know we had like a and it was a big boat so we had probably a I don't know a 10 or 12 foot dinghy with a little engine that we had with us so we'd get our fishing rods and because we had to go out and catch dinner and okay and we'd take a case of beer and we'd go on that little boat. I don't think Clark even put a line in the water. <laughs> Like I don't. If we rely on him on for dinner, guys, we wouldn't have eaten for ten straight days. And uh, <laughs> Dunlop and I had fish, and and uh, you know, Clarky would steer the little boat, and he'd have a great old time going in amongst the reefs. And and uh, no, I don't think he threw his line in the water. I really don't.
0: Did you ever fear for your life when, uh, <laughs> when he's getting close to the reefs? Is there ever a time where you are just like, man, we're screwed if this thing <laughs> no, if this you know thing what? goes down?
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what. It, our captain was so good and, and the very first morning we're out and, and we are in the British Virgin Islands. So the islands are all fairly close and, and you do have a service you can call if you have any issues at all. You know, and there's, there's a lot of boats out there. But the very first morning we caught our anchor on a 40 foot reef. And so our anchor was embedded in a reef. And so the first reaction is, well, call in, you know, they'll send out divers. Not a chance with our captain. We were doing it ourselves. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so the three of us managed to uh, to free it up. And I will say, through that entire exercise, Clark, he stayed in the little dinghy up top. I was halfway <laughs> down the 40-foot line. The other guy, who was a state trooper certified diver as well, was down 40 feet on his own, freeing up that anchor. So, yeah. Bob was a good guy to sail with for entertainment purposes, but not actually for sailing purposes. <laughs> or fishing purposes.
2: Oh, oh that's great. <laughs> that's true. All right, Anthony, back to your questions. Yeah, back to there, back yeah. to back to Dave's career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so 84, 85, you get into the playoffs again. And now the team has lost nine straight playoff games going into the start of the playoffs. Right? I haven't won a playoff game in, since eighty-one, I think in the preliminary round against Quebec. Um and you guys get up early against the Rangers in that first game. You're up 3-0. The Rangers tie it. Timmy Kerr scores. They tie it again. Are you guys thinking, oh, no, here we go again? And then how important was Mark Howe's goal in overtime to get you the win and to kind of build the confidence for that team for the for the rest of the
1: playoff run? It was really, really huge. And, you know, as much as we were saying, here we go again, so were the Rangers saying, here we go again. You know, they, they were almost – they're almost arrogant in their regular season, sitting 30 points behind us, upsetting us in the playoff theory, you know, and it was so frustrating to go through that. And by the way, I played golf this morning with a former New York Ranger. He's part of my regular golf group. So we do discuss this exact topic (laughs) (laughs) who was on those teams. And, uh, and you know, we, we just got over the hump And, and, and that team guys, I would say, specifically that 84, 85 team, our goaltender taught us how to win. Our goaltender, he would steal games and we would win one-nothing or two one. And Pelly Lindbergh would play so great. And then after the game, we'd be strutting around thinking, you know, and and you know, the real hockey purists would say, well, your goaltender stole the game. But the more it happened, the more we believed in ourselves. And we had an incredible taskmaster as a coach who was driving us at every opportunity and trying to take us somewhere where as individuals we didn't want to go and we weren't capable of going to when all that started with Mike and we weren't and you know he drove he pushed he cajoled he threatened he conspired all of those things against us to try and have us pull together and battle against him and it worked and you know, the kids were invincible. They they were all on top of the world. And, and you know, Mark was our best player. I mean, he just, he flat out was our best player. You know, I spoke about Timmy Kerr, you know, being a Hall of Famer in my eyes. You know, Mark Howe is a Hall of Famer and I think was a very underrated defenseman. Um, and, and I played with one of the best in Raymond Bork and, you know, and against others and guys like Paul Coffey and, and Mark Howe was with every one of those guys. And, but scoring that goal, maybe it was fitting that it was him because he was a quiet leader in so many ways. And once he got that, we were on our way.
2: Take you forward. Now you had, a, you were battling through some injuries in that playoff series. And I think you got hurt in the Rangers series.
1: I did. I hurt my knee in the Rangers series. And then against Quebec in the second game, I broke ribs. Okay. The Islanders was a big series win too, guys, because that was, you know, that was the tail end. I mean, they just come off their great run. Right. And that was a big, big, big series win against the Islanders. And then, uh, in game two in Quebec, I remember losing game one, two to one to Quebec and they were a really good offensive team. And, mm-hmm. and we lost two, one, maybe in overtime. That's and, correct. Uh,
2: it was uh stop, right? yeah. yeah.
1: And I remember thinking after the game, we're going to beat these guys. Like that was our talk is, we're going to beat these guys. And we just lost two on an overtime. We're going to beat them. In the second game, I scored a shorthanded goal for Murray Craven and on the play, um, Mario Merwa broke two of my ribs with a cross check. And so I sat out games three and four came back and played in five. We lost in four at home, played in five, which we won on the road. And then that set up game six, which, you know, is, Arguably the game that I am asked about the most and the play I'm asked about the most well, as a Philadelphia Well, player. it's
2: one of the 10 most memorable Flyers goals in the history of the of the franchise. I mean, right. I, you know, I, I remember sitting in front of my television set with my dad and when you, you know, you're two men short. Now, the Flyers are up one nothing at that point. It's not like you were behind or anything like that, but you're up right. 3-2 in the series Um, I think Joe Patterson and Brian proper are in the box with penalties. So it's a two man advantage for Quebec. They had a very good power play, you know? And so here, here comes the situation and then you score a two man shorthanded goal, which how often do they happen? You know, anyway, yeah. Yeah. In any game, let alone in the playoffs. Um, and really that just breaks Quebec's back. And, and I can remember just every step of it. my, my father like knocked was punching the wall. He was so excited after you scored that goal. And, um, but yeah, I mean, you, you went high on him and I, I kind of remember again, I was a teenager. I kind of remember you guys talking about that, about wanting to shoot high on Mario Gosselin, because I guess that was where his, you know, his weak spot was. And, you know, it must've been just the thought process. You pick off that pass at the blue line and go the other way. And, and just, you know, I don't know, take us through it. I, I I'm telling you my version of it, but I wasn't there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was there. Um, you know, and so I'm, I'm getting the ribs frozen before the games, which is quite an arduous task. And, uh, and I have rib protector pads on at that point and, but I, but I'm feeling pretty good. But when I picked the pass off, it was, they were collapsing down in around, and I picked it off at the top of our circles. I believe Marois threw the pass across to Stasny uh, at the top of the circles. And when I picked it off, I knew Marois wasn't going to catch me, but I, didn't, I couldn't judge exactly where Stasny was. And a simple thing, though, and I know you love these details, Russ Stasny's skates are turned towards our net to catch that pass. I'm going the other way. And so it's a pivot for him. And in that time, now I'm pulling away. And already, by the time I hit our blue line, they're not catching me. I mean, I know this. But I also know i got a heck of a long way to go. That's a long time to think. And it was Murray Craven who kept harping on the top glove on Gosselin. Goslin had been the Olympic goalie for Canada, um, I believe in the 84 uh, Olympics. And he kept harping on going high and going high on him. We didn't have a real good book on him. And I'm going to say, by the time I hit center ice, I decided what I was doing. And so I set up for that shot. And, you know, I have pictures of that shot, Anthony, from different parts of the building that people sent me taking pictures of that shot. I have a phenomenal shot from someone who was on the second balcony right above the blue line as I crossed the blue line. And it's so vacant because it, it almost looks like a penalty shot because they weren't anywhere near me at that point. And, uh, and when I scored and, you know, and goal celebrations sort of develop and mine was, you know, one hand with the stick up and, and I can remember Mark Howe was still a long ways away from me. There was no one to celebrate with. I was so far away. I only (laughs) had two guys on the ice. I think Crossman went to change maybe. And so it was Mark Howe and I in this, you know, enormous celebration. Now I think It was a great goal. It was two men short. But I think the significance of the goal, first of all, the teams that we're talking about, guys, were incredibly likable teams to the city of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And they just were. They didn't have superstars. Yes, we had Mark Howe, we had Timmy Kerr, but we didn't have six or seven Hall of Famers like Edmonton had or the Islanders had. And, and we, were, we were about as blue-collar as you could get. More talent there than than we probably knew at the time. You didn't know Rick Tockett was going to score 400 goals. But um, it, was, it was a really good team. And I think the people of Philadelphia appreciate team. And they appreciate the overachieving part. And, you know, we weren't the broad street bullies. We had tough guys in our team. But we weren't the broad street bullies. But we could handle ourselves. And we made the spectrum still one of the hardest buildings to come into in the league. That was a huge factor without a question. But I think the significance that that team with that goal was going to the Stanley cup finals is why it's remembered as well as it is because Holy smokes, Keenan's kids were going to the Stanley cup finals. And if you look at that roster, 20 years old, two 19 year olds, a couple of 20 year olds, 21 year olds, it was so young. It was the youngest team in the NHL. Um, and, and so that's, that's why, to me, it became a significant dis. But, I- but I've been able to talk about it a lot over the years. Um, years later, I'm recruiting a player out of St. Louis to come to the University of Notre Dame who ended up coming and playing for me. And uh, his name was Jan Stasny. And I looked across at his dad at the kitchen table. <laughs> and it was like... Yeah, that was a pretty big play in <laughs> my life too, Peter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, you know, it was 35, we're recording this on May 21st. It was 35 years ago today that you started that final. And oh, you guys wow. won, you know, won game one um, uh, against Edmonton. Um, and and really at that point I was, I, I, you know, Edmonton was the defending cup champion and right, won, know, all won. those great players were like, can this really be? And, and, and then you guys, you know, they they kind of took over to the series from there and maybe you guys weren't quite ready to play with them at that point. Plus you had, you know, you were hurt and Timmy was hurt. And I mean, there was, there were some injuries as well, but you really kind of felt like that was the start of what was going to be this great flyers
1: run. Right. 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 We did. And we thought we were invincible. We were on our way and you know, we were only going to get better and then everything changed you know, November 10th of, of 1985 when we lost Pelly Lindbergh. I mean, we became, you know, humans again. And uh, it changed all of our lives. It was a life-altering event for all of us. Um, there haven't been, you know, too long a stretches go by when I don't think about it in some capacity. And, you know, and and he was such a special guy, such a unique talent. And it was a life lesson. And you know, through my days of coaching and, and through my days in management, I told the story often, and my standard to young guys was, you're allowed to learn from someone else's mistakes. And Pelly made a mistake, and and we all learned from it in a very, very hard way.
0: I, I want to get into that just, to, just a second, because when we had Brian Prop on the show, you know, like, everybody re- reacts to tragedy and, and to defining moments like that differently. Um, when, the, when the Flyers back in December, just before Christmas, got the word that Oscar Lindblom was diagnosed with ewing sarcoma and that it was this very rare cancer and that the chance of survival was extremely low and and honestly based on on the research and everything the fact that he's had success in his recovery to this point as long as he has it honestly kind of defies the odds in a lot of ways when that news first came out there was this thought of you know should the nhl have worked? More with the Flyers, especially because they were there were a lot of young players on the team to maybe give them some time away to reschedule those games, to push them out, because you have to be able to try to be given time to process that this is impacting, uh, you know, another young guy on the roster that a lot of these guys have gone through the AHL with that these guys have spent years, uh, you know, playing with and, and, and growing a relationship with. Do you feel like, uh, obviously it's different because you lost your teammate. In this case, these guys haven't lost their teammate, but it, it, was, it, it wasn't a great outlook at, at the time of, of his diagnosis. Do you think that it's, it's fair in those kind of situations to say, we should give these guys time away? Or do you think that, that a, a lot of guys might prefer to get back out on the ice to try to get away, with, away from that so that it's not the only thing that they, they focus on? In your experience, like how how, do, how yeah, do you Russ, kind of I don't think it?
1: there's a question um, that the safest place and the best place that players want to be is on the ice. And Glenn Sather and the Evans Oilers gave us an opportunity. The league did to push that game, that Thursday game. Um, you know, the service was for Pelly was on Wednesday morning, and they gave us an opportunity to push that Thursday game. We wanted to get back on the ice. We wanted to play um, because that's what we know. That's okay. what's safe. That's where we're best. And I know through my own life, whenever I've gone through different issues, um, I wanted to get back to the ice. You know, that's however you have a safe haven. That's our safe haven as hockey players. So I think that's probably more the case than ever right now for young guys. Yeah.
2: What was it like rallying the locker room? I mean, you're you're the you're the captain. I mean, you're still only in your third year in the league, right? And and you're now tasked with being the the face of the of the team in this, in the midst of this tragedy? Like, what was that like for you? And, and, and how did you feel like you, you had to get everybody going again?
1: Yeah, it was, it was incredibly tough. But I think everybody was in on it. I, I will say I thought that was Mike Keenan at his absolute best. And you know, he was an experienced educator as well. He'd coached at university, He'd been through some different things. But he made us talk and most of us still had four grandparents. I mean, we had never been through death of any sort, let alone an absolute peer. And he made us communicate on that Sunday. It was at my house, um, for the day. Uh, the next day, I think after practice, we all went to his house. He made us talk. He made us tell stories. He made us tell Pele stories. Um, he was a rock through that. He really was, uh, and, and then we leaned on each other. remember Brad McCrimmon being a really, really critical piece of that grouping. I mean, and ironically, you know, the first two names I mentioned as players, Ilka Sinasalo, another one, and both departed, you know, mm-hmm. far too young. But uh, we, we lost way too many guys from that team far too early. And, but at that point, you know, it changed a lot of our lives.
2: Going forward, obviously, that, that year, I mean, you guys had a great finish to the regular season, best record in the Eastern Conference. But then it was like, you, I think you guys just had an, um, ran out of emotional energy in that first round uh, loss to the Rangers. Then the next season, Hextall arrives. Mm-hmm. What, was, he was so different than any other goalie. What did, What were you guys making of him? because of his you know his his brash style and, and it was different than anything that we had seen in such a a long time but i mean you guys knew who he was it's not like he just showed up and nobody no knew who we he was. really didn't know who no he was. okay no
1: we didn't we knew he was a hot shot from the minors but we really didn't know who he was he would have been in camp the year before or maybe a couple of times but you don't necessarily know someone from camp okay and i remember the the Morning of the first game of that season, skating around the ice with Bobby Froze and saying, how you feel? And he said, not very good. I go, why? He said, they're playing the kid tonight. I said, really? Well, that's the first I heard the morning of the game. Um, but Hexie was different. I mean, Hexie changed, changed the game. And, you know, if you were a defenseman, once they figured out what he was doing, which took some time, they didn't get hit. Like, Mark Howe didn't get hit for four years. He never had to go back and get the puck. And, you know, once we learned, particularly with penalty killing was such a weapon on the penalty kill. And, you know, knowing that he was going to handle it, like if it came down from his left, so down the boards behind him that way, he was going to stop it. There's no dumping that was going to get by him going that way. And so you knew that. So you'd force teams and shape them. So they had to dump it in that way. And it was coming back out faster than it went in. And, you know, I talked about Pelly Lindbergh teaching us how to win um Hexy was different he- Hexy expected to win I mean I'm not I, I don't know many more competitive people and like he wouldn't let you score in practice after the referee or after the coach rather blew the whistle to end the drill like you know coach would blow the whistle the drill would end everybody starts skating he still wouldn't let you score like if you <laughs> shot the puck in the net he was furious and that was just Hex oh
2: that's fantastic uh that playoff run in 87 is the set was the seminal hockey moment of my childhood I I thought it was incredible um you missed a lot of time in that playoff series you got hurt against the Rangers right that was ribs again right
1: yeah Barry Breck Barry Beck broke three ribs that day but they were spirally fractured um and and then I came back and played game seven against the Islanders and I tore all the cartilage between the ribs. Oh man. And so, yeah, I wasn't in very good shape at that point. Um, played game six against Montreal. We won. That was the game, the brawl game. Well, I was going
2: to get into that. I want to yeah, talk about the brawl. the brawl. Yeah, that was the <laughs> brawl
1: game. Yeah. And, and so up here, guys, they've shown that series nationally within the last couple of weeks and they staggered it like, like it, on the playoff nights it happened. So it was, you know, it was. It's been on national TV in Canada over the last couple of weeks. So I've answered a lot of questions about the uh, the '87 finals and that '87 year and the cup and the brawl game in the, in the third round. But boy, oh boy, I was I was a mess physically. Murray Craven had a broken foot. Um, Timmy Kerr missed the majority of that plus. We didn't have him down the stretch for sure. Ilka was hurt too, yeah. right? Ilka was hurt. So I would have loved to have played them healthy um it was it was a great run the islanders that was basically the end of the islanders dynasty we may have put a nail in it mm-hmm. you know two years previously but that was the end of podvan bossy and trache you know or the of of their run um addition of Pelly Eklund was a big factor in that talk was really emerging as a leader and a captain or as a player who was going who would go on to be captain and and um you know once again that was it was just an older, wiser, better version of the 85 team with Ron Hextall in that. Tell me we,
0: go ahead, Russ. Before we get into to the series itself, you've mentioned a few times about fractured ribs, rib injuries. Pull back the, the curtain a little bit here because I think a lot of times the fans will think about, all right, an injury to a hand, obviously issues stick. Your legs, your base, feet all make sense. Ribs. I, I can think of a, a myriad of of reasons why that would be a, an impactful injury, and maybe almost as as detrimental to your ability to play at a high level as as any injury to uh, you know to an appendage. Can you give people an idea of just how big of an impact a, a rib injury could have, and and why it, it's such a debilitating injury to to try to play through?
1: Well, you've got to get it sticky first, as the doctors say, because you can't you've got to be careful about lung lung puncturing, you know, if, if it were to break, but um, there were spiral fractures. So literally it's just, it's broken like that, which is a rubbing fracture, which is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, It basically hurts to breathe. I mean, any deep breath at all, um, Lord be a sneeze. You feel like you've just exploded your chest. And so I would have to get them frozen to play and so basically you're doing a nerve block on the rib so you'd go in um you'd sit draped backwards over a chair to open up the rib cage and someone walked in in the middle of this one day and I, you know was telling the story and it was you know cuz we do it like maybe in the shower area and we had an anesthesiologist in Philadelphia who, who would come in specialist to do it and so then you'd go into the rib and go over the top and freeze it and then come back out and then go in again and underneath it and freeze it and do that all the way down and the freezing would come out Russ about two in the morning to three in the morning. And it was unbearable when it came out, it was absolutely unbearable. It was the worst possible time. Now in 87, I flew up to California and had a flak jacket made um, that the quarterbacks were wearing. Basically mm-hmm. uh, Dan Pastorini would be the first one to award for the blind side hit. And, uh, and so once I was frozen up, You couldn't feel anything, and you know we did something with mess not too long ago, and I laughed and I said, "Yeah, someone knew my ribs were broken in '87 because Mark messi cross-checked me on every face-off. That's why they moved me to the wing, so I didn't have to get cross-checked on face-offs or have a face-off motion." So, but by the end of it, by you know, by the end, you're you're a shell of yourself as a player. You're you're out there going, you know, and and doing what you can do, but um, it's tough. The breathing part is really a challenge.
0: And wearing something like the vest, yeah,
1: does that
0: does that inhibit your breathing as well,
1: or well, you wear it real snug, and yeah. so you know, um, from a confidence standpoint, you wear it real snug because you know it's going to protect it. But yeah, it's part of it for sure. Okay.
2: So I, I wanted to. I mean, everybody always asks us, uh, you know, talking about the the brawl. We we talk about it as as fans, as people who witnessed it. Take us through, because you, you guys you, you guys knew it was coming, or kind of, right? I mean, Darryl uh, – I, I don't
1: think we did. I've been asked that before. I don't no? think we knew. We'd have been better prepared if we knew it was coming. <laughs> um, no, we didn't know it was coming. The, the histrionics were two young players, a 20- and a 21-year-old from Montreal, Shane Corson and Claude Lemieux. They would stay out after at the end of the warm-up, and they would shoot pucks into the other team's net, and the crowd would go crazy. And so they'd done this earlier in the series and the crowd would get all, you know, so locker rooms in the Montreal form are pretty close to the rink. And so you'd be in your locker room and you'd be hearing these roars go up and, you know, and it'd be like, what's going on? And the trainer would say, oh, they shoot pucks into the net. So Eddie hospital um, who hadn't dressed and Chico Resch, the backup goalie decided to take things into their own hands. A couple of games before that. oh and, really? Well, they did and they stayed the first time I think they pushed the net up against the boards backwards. So they couldn't shoot the pucks in the net. And then the second time, maybe they stayed out on the ice um, and kind of protected the net a little bit. And then in game six, I was coming back and I, I might've been getting my ribs frozen at that exact moment or, or just before that. And so we'd come off the ice and, Eddie and Chico were lingering on the ice. And so Lemieux and Corson left the ice and they went and there was a curtain and they hid behind the little curtain down the runway. So Eddie and Chico basically did the same thing, but then they heard the crowd yell because those two guys snuck back out on the ice. So Chico and Eddie went flying back out on the ice and, and, you know, Eddie wasn't going to waste time. Like, you know, Chatting, he grabbed Claude Lemieux and started to beat him up, which leaves Chico with Shane Corson. You don't like those odds at all. And so then Turk Evers, our trainer, came running to the locker room, and you know its proximity is pretty good, and said, "There's a big fight. There's a big fight." Well, guys come off for warm up at different times, right? You might come off with a minute left, two minutes left, you know, whatever. So there are different stages of undress. I've got my skates off. I've got my shoulder pads off. My flak jackets off. Uh, my elbow pads are off and my jerseys off. So like I'm in mean, almost totally undressed and different guys are at different stages. So they're scrambling to get back together to get out. And I, I'm not sure why everyone thought we knew this was coming. Doug Crossman had shower shoes on my God. I mean, he did. Suit. He flip-flops on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's out there like a sixties peacemaker going, come on, man, let's go. <laughs> come on, man. And, and you know, I threw my jersey on and my flak jacket. I had nothing else on. But I had to tie my skates up. Um, by the time I got out there, Dave Brown had gone on, and he had a, kind of an abbreviated rib pads on, but with no jersey. So there was nothing to grab onto for Chris Nyland. And he went looking for Chris Nyland. And, you know, the Canadians had some tough customers as well. And it was just a surreal However long it lasted,
2: yeah,
1: uh, you know it was, it was really crazy. Then I ended up going down to the locker room uh, to meet with the officials and Bob Gainey, the two captains, and and uh, to try and sort through what had happened. It was it, it was a chaotic ten or twelve minutes, however long it lasted. The amazing thing is, I guess the severity of it stopped itself because it's never happened again, which is amazing to me. Um, and, and I'm surprised they didn't change the rule and have officials out there during warmup, which they still don't. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that was a tough Montreal team. And then that was a tough flyers group. And, you know, Chris Nylon I played with him later years in Boston was a tough customer and nobody was tougher than Dave Brown in my book.
2: Unreal. It was, it's a great memory. And then you guys win the series. And then tell me what you think. And maybe I'm biased being in Philadelphia. And you you know you've played in a lot of hockey, great hockey games, and watched a lot of great hockey games. I still say that get seven game series against Edmonton, greatest NHL final of my lifetime. I'm 46, so yeah, I I, I can't think think of another
1: one. You know, Anthony, I think it was, and it got. It's the only one they've played in its entirety up here. Maybe they they might have played one other one, but the today's players really surprised me because i got comments from some of the guys that some of the guys that played today said it was really fast because mostly today's players will look back and say it was really slow and and it wasn't it was a really well-played series it was a fast series um you know we were missing tim kerr throughout that series he would have been a difference maker he flat out would have he was the best power play goal scorer one of the best offensive players in the nhl at that point four straight 50 goal years as i mentioned earlier and It would have been great to have him, but I will say we gave it what we had. I mean, we did. I had never watched any of those games until they were on up here, and I watched game five and game seven. I'm not sure why, but I watched game five and game seven, and it's the first time I've ever watched them. And uh, we were a good team. We were a good team. And we had our chances within that game to win and and. Grant Fear was every bit as good as Ron Hextall was, and that's an under, underrated part of that series. But their difference makers were difference makers. Messier had a goal from Kenton Nielsen, and uh, Curry scored from Gretzky, and Anderson finished it. So their superstars were truly superstars.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I go back and, and I look at it, and you, the three wins that you guys had in that series, you were behind in every game. Every and then, game. And not just behind one goal, you were behind 3 nothing, you know, 3 right. 1, 2 nothing, and, and yeah, I was at game six when JJ Daniel scored loudest I've ever heard an arena uh, when he scores that game winning goal again. And, and then what a lot of people don't ever talk about in that game six, I can remember the very end of the game. Um, Hextall made a save and then tried to clear the puck and Messier kept it in. And he's out of yeah. the net and we're going, Oh no, 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 this is good. They're going to tie it. Right. It was oh. just, it was just remarkable emotion. It was an emotional ride. Like, like none I can ever uh, – I can remember as a fan of, of the sport. i got to imagine that that had to be the same thing for you guys as players.
1: Yeah, it really was. You know, I had an opportunity to go to the finals three times once more with Boston, and and that was the best opportunity we had to win the Cup. Obviously, went seven games. In a seven-game series, anything can happen. But uh, I was really proud of that team, too. You know, I, I do think the best team won that night, and – and at the time, I mean, it was heartbreaking for us. I mean, it was, I remember Ralph Mellenby, Scott's dad, the famous producer, Hockey in Canada, sitting with Scotty just in tears in the locker room. And the emotion of it all, it was, uh, it had been an incredibly draining sequence, you know, back for a couple of years with that team. That team went through a lot together. And uh, it was a special group of guys.
2: I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I did have a lot more, but you know, Russ intervened with all his stuff. So um, I'm, I'm Maybe try we'll do
1: part two one day.
0: There we go. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> you know, Anthony looks at this as a negative. He's still got his list. Nothing's changed. Uh, We're having a good old time. No, but uh, the, one, the one couple more things I wanted to get to uh, about that year, not even that was really tied into the Flyers so much. I mean, you win the Selkie Award that year, 87. Um, you also got to play in Rendezvous 87, which – I kind of remember being like a really cool experience—the Russians against the NHL All Stars—and you scored the game-winning goal in Game One of that series, I I believe, off a pass from Lemieux. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it was a line change. Trust me, I wasn't on Lemieux's line. (laughs) Um, It was—we were there for defensive purposes, and you know, I—there's no way you were going to make that team. They were picking one team from the NHL. It was during the All-Star break, during the Quebec Winter Carnival, and you were playing against the great—you know—the great Russian Red Army team. So there's no way I would make that team. And, and they made it a decision to go with a defensive line to play against the KLM line. So that great Krutov, Larionov, Makarov line with Fetisov and Kasatanov. That line had been together for 16 years or something as a group. I think they were 28 years old and they were 12 years old when they were put together. Larionov was 10. And so they knew each other so well. And, and the line they put together was Kevin Denine on the right. They moved me to the left. And Dale Howarchuk in the middle, and and you think of Dale Howardchuk as a great offensive player. I think he was one of the most underrated players in the history of the NHL. And they said, well, if we do get the puck, we have to possess it. That's why we need Dale in the middle. And we scored two two of the four goals in the first game and, and shut down the KLM line as much as they can be shut down. And just a really great experience for me being on that national stage. But interesting dynamics in the locker room, guys, because I was sitting with Dougie Wilson, the GM of uh, San Jose now, and he was the captain of Chicago. And as I wheeled in a locker room, he said, "Oh, so you've never been in a locker room with Mess and Gretz, have you?" And I said, "No, you know, I I played in an All Star game, but it was in the East." And he said, "Watch this." He goes, "Watch this dynamic." And Mess was the leader, guys, and he was the leader. Gretz just got to be the best player, and you know, he didn't say a whole lot in the locker room, and and you know, Mess was kind of an authoritative guy. And then in the second game, after the second period, we were down by a couple. And Mess came in, and Gretz had already sat down and was taking off his skates. And W. Uh, Wilson poked me, goes, watch, watch, watch. And Messy went right at Gretzky, right face to face, and said, come on, Gretz, need a little magic here. Need a little magic here. And, and, you know, and we were all backing off like, oh, geez, how does this work? You know, it was such an inside look at. Can you imagine two of the greatest players in the game playing together and their styles complemented, and their personalities complemented, And you just think of Mark Nessie, you don't have to see a checking line for your first eight years in the league because because they're <laughs> checking Gretz. Um, and Gretz went out and had a couple of assists in the third period and was unbelievable. And I can just remember that sticking out in my mind as – how powerful that connection was it was a great experience for me and you know when you got to play in those kinds of things it was really fun
2: um you finish up with boston and washington three years of boston you, you talked about having one more crack at it uh in 90 of course you run into edmonton again um, well then
1: we lost to to mario's two cup teams though in the conference finals and, right yeah you know yeah. so we lost in six and four in the conference finals so I lost to the Cup champion way too many times, guys.
2: <laughs> Holy but in 92, ninety two 92, ninety ninety two ninety three, there's there's an underrated award in the NHL. It's kind of the equivalent of the NFL's uh, Walter Payton Award, right? Um, and it's called the King Clancy Award. And you got this award in ninety two ninety three, and it really, it, to me, it, it's a, it's more of a humanitarian kind of award. It, it it does equate, obviously, a little bit of what you do on the ice, but it's more about what you do off. Um, And you got that award in 92, 93, when you were with the Bruins. Can can you just talk about what that award means to you, uh, looking back over the course of your career, of all the great things you've experienced, to be able to be in that small group of select individuals who've won that award?
1: Yeah, that was pretty cool. It was unexpected, and your team nominates you. And, you know, we've done a bunch of charity stuff off the ice, and some of it was was very, very personal. Um, You know, I had twin daughters that were born at Penn Hospital um three and a half months early so born in the 25th week and I'd watched the medical miracle that they had turned and those young women now have blossomed beautifully and you know have great careers and great lives going um so I think that was an awakening for us to get involved off the ice and we did with various foundations and and got guys involved and you know but I think of the flyers back then and the flyers fight for wives carnival that started and and originally eddie and myrna snyder and and their family and it was just sort of drilled india all the way along and i think brad marsh now is doing a great job with it you know with the flyer warrior team and and the things that he's doing in the community was always seen as part of it the flyers to me more than any other you know team were part of the community and that was ed snyder and he just demanded it and commanded it and the uniqueness of him being the owner of a team for 48 plus years or however many years was so unique and separated every other franchise in pro sports as having a singular owner for that period of time is, and that's what made it special. That's what drilled it into me was being a flyer and being a part of so many things off the ice and just continued with Austin.
0: I want to go off of your, your awards uh, just for a moment here. So won the one, the Selkie. Uh, a seventh place, two seventh place finishes for the Selkie. You were up, uh, top 20, I believe, or so in, in, 89, 90. Um, and then a, a second place finish that same year that you, you won the Clancy, but you were also in the top 15, uh, back in 84, 85 for winning the, the, the heart trophy for the league MVP. You know, I, I, I know that there's a, a I lot know of that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know that there's a, a lot that goes, well, I guess that's going to kind of answer this question for me a little bit, but um, I know that a lot of guys really like to take pride in their defensive games. So the Selkie is, is a huge uh, award to win. I guess I'm going to change this on the fly. Cause I was going to say, does it mean more to know that you finished in the top 15 for the league MVP? You know, I, I guess even now thinking back on it,
1: you know, is that, is that a cool thing to think about?
0: Well, that- so Quite
1: frankly, I'm, I've never heard that. Russ, you've done homework that has never been done because I didn't know that. Uh, I've only been, I think, I think I was in the running, I might have been top five for rookie of the year.
2: You were fourth. You uh, You're fourth, fourth for Calder. Yeah, and Definitely. so, yeah.
1: you know, to, to, to have won two major NHL awards and be considered for other ones, I think is incredibly flattering. You think, you know, how many NHL awards are there where well, you're not going to win the Norris' as best defenseman, you're not going to win the Vesna and Nat, um, you're not going to win... The leading goal scorer because you're not going to be the leading goal scorer <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know there's these different factors so it's quite flattering it really is and I I do I have this funny little box that I have um you know whenever I've moved or anything and it just says majors and just just the major awards get to go in that box <laughs> it's pretty but, cool <laughs> last question
2: that I have uh Dave is this um after your playing career is over you spend 10 years coaching at Notre Dame you got into management with the Toronto Maple Leafs, and now you've done doing stuff with uh, TSN in Canada um, as, a, uh, as an analyst. You look at the three, three different things. What, what, do you like the, what did you like the most, coaching, management, or being on our side, being in the media?
1: I don't think I was ever a coach. I coached for 10 years, and I don't think I was wired to coach. Um, University of Notre Dame, as they do, called me and asked me to come back. I was playing and they said um and i i hung up the phone and i said i just got a really weird phone call and you know i i hadn't thought about being a coach i had no ambition to be a coach um i had worked in my years in philly off ice on on wall street and so i'd worked and uh you know got all my licenses and was a stockbroker and that's what i was going to do i had no thoughts of coaching and but the the ability to go back and be on campus and raise my daughters on campus was the the most significant thing to have a stable lifestyle and raise my daughters on campus and um and i've got three beautifully talented daughters um you know all with huge educations all multilingual uh, you know and what they do and and so talented and so much fun to watch them blossom and that was I think that was because they grew up on the campus at the University of Notre Dame. So I would never trade that for anything, but eventually with coaching, you know, I wanted to treat players how I wanted to be treated as a player. And you can't do that. Um, You just can't, especially with college coaches. I remember the first time, one of the first weekends I was coaching, we won a big game on a Saturday night. and, And I used an old expression from playing and I said after the game, okay, boys lights green tonight. And my assistants were cringing and said, you can never tell college kids (laughs) that the light is green, ever. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, um, probably management suited me best. Um, Because I'd played, because I'd coached, I like to manage coaches. Uh, I like the different, you know, the different parts of it. But I was so spoiled coming in in the role I came into Toronto with and the people I worked with. And I've had opportunities to get back in and, you know, I'm pretty settled in media now. So I do color Um, for Montreal games. I do 34 Montreal games color, whether they're home or on the road, I do, you know, eight or 10 Ottawa games. I've done Winnipeg games as well. Uh, But then I do the panel for the leaf telecasts. So I think we broadcast 34 leaf games and I do pregame and between periods for those. So those are two very different jobs doing color for a game or doing you know, panels for a game. Um, and then I do the shows I do sports center. I'll do that. hockey with, Gino know, Retta, you know, I'll jump on the radio. So I like, I, I probably live in six or seven totally different silos and I like the variance and, you know, and I also like summers off, um, which management doesn't get. Doesn't get. <laughs> <laughs> get. Yeah. 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 And so, um, I really like the variety in my life right now. And, you know, I'm still a big part of the game, but I, I'm, I'm enjoying the variety.
0: When it came to, uh, to coaching, uh, last thing here, when it came to coaching, was there an aspect that you absolutely wanted nothing to do with, that, that you would yeah. rather hand off to the
1: assistants and just, what was it? Being a tyrant. Okay. Waking up some mornings, Russ, and knowing you had to be an absolute tyrant today. It's not in my nature. You know, I'm... I'm a very positive person and I knew that some days to get through to them, I had to be an absolute hurricane and it was beating me up as a person. I didn't like what it was doing to me. Um, you know, it, and I, and it was a necessary part of it. And let's face it, I played for somebody who arguably did it better than anybody else in the history of the game. And that was Mike Keenan. And it, it just wasn't me. It wasn't my nature. And that was really, really hard.
2: Well, Dave, listen, you gave us far more time than we could have ever asked for today. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us here on Snow the Goalie. Uh, all the best to you. And hopefully, I know when, uh, when your grandchild comes down here in Philadelphia and you'll be making your treks down, we'll hopefully see you at the rink and uh, catch up and, and uh, tell some more great stories. But thank you Enjoy once again. Enjoy the
1: memories, guys. Thanks a lot uh, for letting me share them. And uh, good luck with everything.
2: Yep. Thanks again. Thank you.
0: You know, I said it last week. I just need everybody to take the index finger, the middle finger, right underneath the outside of your jawbone, right there on your neck, and feel for a pulse. And if you have one, which I'm assuming you do, because it's really hard to download podcasts if you don't, I assume that you've laughed. You laughed quite a few times in that interview. That, my friend, Anthony, was, I think, a... uh, surprisingly fun interview. I'll, I'll admit it. And I don't want, I know Dave is going to listen back to this. So, and and he was delightful. So I don't want him to feel like I had low expectations going in, but there's so much that he dropped on us in that interview that I just had no idea about. Were you, Were you, did it live up to, to the hype?
2: It definitely lived up to the hype, Russ. I'll be honest with you. That was, uh, it was a great interview. I knew, I mean, obviously he's a TV guy, right? So, you know, talking to Dave Poolin, that he's going to give you like great, thorough answers. But what really, I, g- I guess, his TV experience has taught him is that he knows how to th- sneak in anecdotes at just the right time. And he starts right off the bat in this interview when he hits us with the figure skates. That's right? Great. I mean, literally the That's first day stuff. That he's wearing his wearing his sister's figure skates painted black, Um, you know, like that is is a great little anecdote to start with, and it just went from one to another to another to another. I mean, we, it was amazing, and 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 he just wouldn't stop telling stories. You know, I originally, in a good way, in a good way, yes, you know. Because originally we had talked, you know, when I had talked to him to set up the interview, I said, Dave, they, most of these interviews are running about 45 minutes to an hour. I said, so if we can use, you know, that much time, he says, yeah, sure. No problem. Then he gives us like an extra 35, 40 yeah. minutes. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like he just kept going and it was, and, and we were riveted. I mean, I wish people could see the video reactions. from Well, these- we're going to,
0: we are just so you know, and, and I know that a few people have asked uh, about this over the last few weeks about were there videos with, uh, Ken Hitchcock. Was there a video with, um, uh, I have like post-pregnancy brain here. I'm not the pregnant one, obviously. I have like newborn brain. Who do we have the week before? Before Hitchcock? Before Hitch. Chief. We had Barubi. Before Barubi, we had. Luko. Luko. Uh, we didn't release any of those videos, they, but they're going to all go up on the Crossing Broad YouTube channel. I'm going okay, to talk to Craig go. about it this week. So all right, we we do want you, like obviously, listen, I've said this before. Getting the podcast downloads is big, just because it it helps us, especially with our ranking, which we'll talk about a little bit later in, in Apple Podcasts. So we definitely want everybody to keep listening, keep downloading, go through the whole thing, and then after the fact, if you want to go and watch the interview, by all means, because there there are some great moments in the uh, the interview with A. Poulin.
2: Yeah, I, I I say I mean I you know I mean, you can by all you know I'm not going to tell anybody not to go back and watch the interview with Hitch or not to go back and watch the interview with Chief. Um, they were from some weirder weirder angles because of where they had their ipads which is how they were calling in with um but i'll tell you great videos that we had were kevin Mm -hmm. It was a fun one because he was out on his back deck and he constantly was trying to stay out of the sun yeah and and of course we had the tech issues with that one which was hysterical and, you know, canoe wasn't bad, but this one is really good with Dave pool. like, he's yeah. just, he's just an engaging storyteller and you're just, you can't take your, you can't take your eyes or ears off of him as he tells you a story. It's great.
0: Yeah. He was, he was honestly, he was sensational. And I'm, I'm really happy that, uh, that we ended up having him on the show. And, and it's funny because a lot of times you talk about, you know, guys that you think about potentially going on and, and working in media, you know, later in life. And, you know, Mike Knubel was a guy that we had on earlier in the quarantine, you know, especially for those who might not have been keeping up with the show to this point. Uh, I don't I don't blame anybody who might have had to get away from podcasts because of uh, uh, work and, and having to work from home and having kids hanging off you or just, you know, whatever. You don't get the the commute. I've heard a lot about other people's shows being down in numbers. Ours aren't, which is kind of cool. But anyway, I digress. If you missed any of those interviews, go back and listen to them. But like with Mike Knubel, we talked about, hey, you know, here's a guy who is... A solid speaker, a guy who brings a a solid insight, and you know you could definitely see working in media at some point. And I think that you know Dave Poulin's kind of that exemplar model of a guy who was an excellent player for the Flyers, Hall of Famer for the Flyers, and has gone on to great success and and working in a in a few different ways and a few different arenas. You know he's a studio host uh, with TSN. He does analyst work for them. He does, uh, what do you say? Color commentary for, uh, two of the teams in Canada, Montreal, Montreal. Cain, Montreal yeah. And the, and, and the, uh, the, Leafs, right? Leafs. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you put all that together and it's like, this is, this is a guy who's got a multifaceted approach to analyzing and breaking down hockey for, you know, those who are well-versed in the sport and those who might be picking it up casually. So, there, there was so much because the, the figure skating thing uh, I, I really did enjoy because I think I think I mentioned it in the interview, but like the last Winter Olympics, I remember like Twitter went crazy because there was the graphic of, of all the different kinds of skates. The one thing that I did want to ask Dave about was uh, how long he was rocking the figure skates and rocking that additional, pointy weapon of a blade in the front of his skate you know the only thing i can compare it to is and and i think there are probably some people who listen to the show who would understand this reference but like you play youth soccer and sometimes parents don't want to buy a new pair of soccer cleats so they let their kid go out and wear the baseball cleats and the baseball cleats for the most part are similar with the one exception being that one plug right on the, the toe that one spike right up top and that's what they always check for in the youth league games. And it's like, that's a little weapon, right? Because if you go sliding in on somebody and you peg them with that, that one's going to hurt. Uh, so I, I would say, though, that the figure skating point is probably an even more dangerous bladed weapon. And uh, let's just be glad that Dave uh, you know, lived to tell the story and so did all of his opponents. That's good. That's good.
2: Yeah, no, I just – and, and I, I loved the stories that he told – uh about bob clark i mean <laughs> how great were those stories Rob God,
0: the anchor the the idea that bob clark's best friend was a massive man who went and dove 40 feet underwater to go dislodge an anchor from a from a coral reef that's a great story and and what was the most notable thing tough guy bobby clark right the guy that everybody thinks of oh broad street bully right oh what a perfect example of a broad of the broad street bullies Where's Bobby Clark in that story? He's on the dinghy. You think he's getting in that water? Nah. So the next time I hear anybody say that Claude Giroux is soft or James Van Reamsdyk soft, I want to go back and let's make sure that we let everybody know that Bobby Clark stayed in the dinghy. That's (laughs) the biggest takeaway from the interview.
2: And that, that he doesn't really like the fish. Yeah, he doesn't he like, want to catch it. He likes to really people. want to catch it. We well, admitted yeah.
0: to us before, and, and I highly encourage people who might have found the show way after the fact, but we did an extended interview with Bob Clark. I think it's on Last YouTube. Year. If it's not, I'll make sure it goes up. But um, yeah. the, the Bob Clark interview was fantastic. But our video guy, Craig, and I'll, I might actually put this clip out again on social this week, but the clip of Bob Clark, it's I think a minute 45 of every time he referenced beer. Uh, in his episode of the show, where he's like, "Oh, you just want to go out on the on the water and have a nice couple of cans of beer, you know?" And you're just like, "Wow, all right, Bob, all right, I got you." But no, I, I that the story and the story of retirement and of taking um Dave under his wing like he did, knowing that that was going to be the end for him. Like, there's so many great anecdotes in there. The one thing that I I wanted to ask and there was no way to get it in there was, man. Imagine being asked to go on this fishing trip, right? You're a young kid. You've got Bobby Clark saying, hey, come with me. I'm going to take you under my wing. Finding out he's going to retire and become the GM. Man, you've got the best job security in the organization at that point, right?
2: Exactly. You know, there's
0: no – listen, as a young player, you're like, am I going down? Am I going to be bouncing back and forth? Am I going to potentially get traded? You got to go on a fishing expedition with the uh, soon-to-be GM? You ain't going anywhere, friend.
2: And and how about the whole practicing the press conference?
0: <laughs> yes, wait. And practicing with drinks. See, that's the thing. We should let – we should actively encourage that players, GMs, coaches, before they go out and meet the media, they should have a couple of bubblies because they're going to be a lot more honest, right? Well,
2: How about, how about if we have on the podium Elaine Vigneault – and he's sitting sitting there with his martini.
0: I don't want him at the podium at that point. I want Elaine's corner, right? Elaine's alley, if you will, where he sits down on a lovely chase, maybe a love seat. However he wants it, he gets it. And we just kind of sit around on these like IKEA fold-out chairs and it's A-OK. And Elaine just kicks back, crosses the legs, one hand behind, the other holding, you know, some poetry or something. And somebody else is actually... Holding the martini for him, allowing him to sip from it. Elaine doesn't need anyway. Martinis, it would be great. The AV teeny. How many martinis do you think Elaine Vino is up to this? uh, You know, since the since the
2: oh, I I would I am I I imagine it's plenty. I I think that he's probably had a few nights where he went went back for a second.
0: So if we get to have uh, another one of those great conference calls uh, at some point soon with. uh, With AV, if it pops up Uh, before we get back to things, I'm sure that nobody else in the media is going to ask this question. So we'll have to make sure that the first question he gets asked is how many martinis have you had, AV? We've got that (laughs) on the docket. Um, So anyway, hope everybody enjoyed that interview. Anthony, let's talk about um, what I, I would say is probably some of the better, more positive news to come out of the NHL or NHL circles, at least in the last month, month and a half. And that is that. The NHL Players Association held a vote. The executive board, so that's every team. That's all 31 teams. Player representatives. In the case of the Flyers, it's James Van Riemsdyk. They sat down. They looked over the proposal from the NHL. A very, you know, basic idea. A basic premise of this is what we want to look at exploring further. And the players' uh, executive board said, "All right, we're good to go." And uh, the vote apparently was 29 to two, which I'm honestly surprised by. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, but it's, I do. it's by no means a full, you know, we're back at it, baby. We're, we're hundred percent in, but it is a, Hey, as long as we're being safe, as long as we're, you know, taking necessary precautions, we can at least begin to explore the possibility of bringing hockey back.
2: Well, I'm, I'm going to do something we haven't done around here in a while. Yes. I'm going I'm to go a little negative. I hate you. Well, why is this positive news? They they approved this proposal.
0: Why is it positive news? Yeah, why is it positive Because news? they could have just as easily said, we don't want to explore any possibility until there's a vaccine.
2: There's nothing. This is not, first of all, all this was, was, okay, if we come back, we're accepting of this 24-team tournament. Sure. Okay. So that's number one. So there's no, there's got to be – they are going to have to take another vote before anything is finalized. And there's okay, a here. lot of logistics we that can play, have to
0: – We can play this part of the game then. But by, the... by them – hold on. But by them saying we're cool with this playoff tournament, this structure, the 24 teams, it would appear that they're saying we are no longer going to hold out to make sure that every team plays the same amount of games and we don't have the escrow issue we had.
2: No no, right? no, 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 I disagree so. with, the, I don't, don't think, think so. the, I don't think it has anything to do with the finances, I think the finances have to be determined still, I think what you're looking at here, and let's put, let's really break this down, okay, so you had to vote 29 to 2, well, seven teams aren't gonna play, yeah, right, because right. they 24 out of 31, mm-hmm. those seven teams are like, yeah, sure, go ahead, we don't have to worry about anything, <laughs> right, so there's seven of your 29 votes, uh, it has also been reported that there were seven other teams, at least seven, maybe a couple more. But uh, from what I'm seeing, uh, it was seven other teams that said, "Hey, we're not voting yet. We just want to go back and talk to our guys and see what they think." Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you have half that that half the league who hasn't really, you know, given you an impactful vote. Mm-hmm. Now, of the remainder, yes. Um, you had 15 teams that said, "Yeah, we'll go with it," and two that didn't. The two that didn't were the Carolina Hurricanes, mm-hmm. understandably so, and I'll explain why. And the Tampa Bay Lightning, which I don't understand a little bit, but they were against it too. Um, and so what happens is is that Donald Fear, who's you know the the president of the Players Association, um, gets enough votes before these seven teams can come back and even say what they're what they want. So at that point, it's like, well, we might as well make it seem like we're all behind it. Yeah, we're going to support it at that point, right? Because he had enough votes to pass it.
0: Yeah, because I like honestly on the surface, and I tweeted this. Like I, I expected six, probably six or so teams to vote no, and I definitely would have expected Jersey and Buffalo, and I I thought Dallas too, because Dallas is in fourth, or they're one point out of uh, fourth place which puts them in that totally other bracket where it's no longer like a play into the tournament. It's a reseeding kind of thing that they're uh, in, in theory throwing about. So it's like, all right, if you're Dallas and you're one point out with two games in hand, like I wouldn't be happy about that because I'm now being forced to play in this play in tournament instead of potentially getting reseeded. And by the way, like the possibility that the four points are out there and you've played two fewer games like that to me, Dallas should have been a no brainer to vote against it. And Jersey and Buffalo were like on the bubble of the 2014 playoff. And then you can kind of get into, all right, if, if you're Jersey, if you're Buffalo, do you really want to get in? Or do you want to potentially have a better chance, a higher lottery percentage? Uh, I know that doesn't work there, but like the idea of like, do you really want to be part of the playoffs or would you prefer to just stay home? Because you know that if you're Jersey, if you're Buffalo, you don't have a shot of winning the Stanley cup. So what's the point? So I thought that those three teams would undoubtedly vote no, and maybe there's some of the seven I don't know, but that to me was surprising. I, I don't I don't really believe the twenty nine to two. It might have been how it came down, but like to your point, it wasn't twenty nine definitive yeses. It was all right unity hashtag. It unity. was fi-
2: it was fifteen definitive yeses. Yeah, which is half the league. Yep. Right the other i mean there's like i said seven teams who aren't in are like all right well whatever where, where? i would
0: think seven that are not in and then seven of the top eight seeds across the uh the entire league should have been okay with it right it's uh, whatever so
2: 15 yeah 15 I mean, that, so 16, I
0: mean, 16 potentially against
2: yeah i mean but you look at a team look at a team like carolina for example mm-hmm. all right mathematically they had if you if you if you believe in percent chance to make the playoffs which i'm you know, I've always been skeptical of because you don't it's don't like geeky. math. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's not that I don't like math. It's like, I don't like, I don't like math that is projecting. Okay. Right. I mean, if you want to use math from something that already happened, fine, but I don't like math saying, well, there's an 80% chance that they're going to make the playoffs. How do you, how do you know what's going to happen between now and the end of the season? You have no idea. You just don't. And, and, and to sit there and say, well, we're running simulations. Those numbers change nonstop. And mm-hmm. so eventually it's like, well, see, we told you that they had a really good chance. Well, yeah, but at one point you told us they had no chance. Mm-hmm. Like the St. Louis Blues last year, we were told by all the math people they had no chance of making the playoffs, and then they win the friggin' Stanley Cup. Okay, so I don't, you know, I don't buy into that whole thing. But – also argue it's an anomaly, but okay. I don't uh, want to skew too negative. Go ahead. No, but it's, it Go is. Ahead. It is what it is. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not a fan of projection mathematics, mm-hmm. but okay. They, the Carolina Hurricanes had an 80% chance of making the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and that's the that's the sixteen team playoff at at the regular season. Now they have to win a best of five series against a team that they went zero and four against in the regular season. That was, you know, very injured at at the end of the season. That will now be healthy. Yep. Okay, and they now have to win three out of those five games just to get in. Mm -hmm. And so that's a much different scenario right? It's a lot different than what it was before. So, of course, the Carolina Hurricanes are going to look at it and say, well, why would we support this? You know? And there are other teams that are like them that probably just didn't have the the gumption. The chutzpah? The chutzpah, the, the, the chutzpah to vote against it. Tampa yeah. voted against it, which I don't I didn't quite grasp Tampa's rationale. They
0: made it sound like more of it was a, it was a health concern. Like, they weren't comfortable with it. And I guess I get it. Like, Florida, yeah. the way that Florida's kind of handled the whole pandemic thing. Like, okay. Yeah.
2: Oh, but here's the, here's the thing, and, this, this is, and I thought that this was a great, great quote, okay? Devin Dubnik, who is the um, Minnesota Wilds player rep uh, on the executive committee, um, he said another vote will absolutely be necessary by all the players once all the details are negotiated between the NHL and the NHLPA, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so here's his quote. He says, we voted strictly on the format. In other words, if we are to come back, this is how it's going to be played. But we have not even touched on logistics or cities or travel or testing or how the economics will work or what the quarantine bubble supposed to li- – where the players are supposed to live in will be like or any of that stuff yet. I think it's really important to start having these conversations with as many players as we can about, guys, what scenario are we okay with? From what it sounds like it's going to be some sort of hub city scenario so we've got to talk about that how long are guys okay with being away for when are we when we're in this city are we locked in our hotel room going from the hotel room to the rink and back only are guys okay with doing just that can our families come with us or is there a family if there's a family emergency and we leave the bubble to go back into society can we return to the bubble or are we done what's the food situation like can we only eat in the hotel rooms how often are we tested who pays for that what's the damage economically to the sport All of these things and there's so many variables need to be talked about and we've got to start getting a grasp on it now so that it doesn't just hit us in the face all of a sudden. This stuff hasn't been discussed with the players. Everything's just been so hypothetical. So that's what I'm hoping is going to come out of this now because we don't want a situation where it seems like, okay, everybody's ready to go. Let's get back and play. And then all of a sudden guys are like, whoa, 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 I'm not okay with that. And then it goes from like super positive to super negative. So that's why we've got to talk about everything And then have a vote once and for all. Now think about what he just said. Yeah,
0: I can tell you what I think of it.
2: Go ahead.
0: It's BS. It sounds really great. No, I'm serious. I think it sounds really good. This to me is, is posturing. And I think it's smart. Like I do think it's intelligent posturing, but it's posturing. If you mean to tell me that as the player rep of a team, of a professional sports team, that has had nothing to do, has had nothing on his plate for the last month and a half, if I'm to believe that you are so out of touch with your team that you don't know where your teammates stand at this at this current moment on many of the aforementioned points, you've done a terrible job as a player rep. That's where I'm at. because You're wrong. You're, no, I'm not. You're wrong. I'm sure no. that they've had these discussions, Russ. Okay, but the way that they make it sound, the way that he makes it sound, maybe is, hey, the league hasn't sat down and talked to the players as a whole. You mean to tell me that after we've had I don't know how many different players do these conference calls. We've had AVs popped on, Chuck Fletcher's popped on. There have been the same kind of discussions with team presidents going out in public, you know, making comments about things, other coaches, other players. I'm sorry, I just, I don't buy this
2: 100%. Do- but they don't know. In other words, the league has not, sure, there's been some rumors going around. There's been some, you know, conversations about, well, if it's this, then we can maybe do this or what. But there's been nothing official. So it's kind of like, okay, I don't know well, if you've ever been, have you ever been in a negotiating table for a contract? not a hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Well, so here's, so as someone who has, I'm going to, I'm going to okay. tell you, I mean, and this is not meant to, yeah. you know, like I'm talking down to you. I'm just trying to explain I it. No, okay. So basically what'll happen is, is that both sides will come to the table. There'll be a very vague general conversation. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the two sides will split off into two separate rooms and they'll talk about what they think the other side's going to do. And if they say, okay, well, if they do this, then we'll do this. If they do this, then we'll do this. But you don't know. Like you just have to, you kind of have to, you kind of have to play situations out in your head. And then if, if they, if a curveball is thrown at you, you've got to ask for a caucus. You got to say, well, wait a second. We're, we're not prepared to discuss that. So we need more time. This is what's happening. So yeah, the players know, the players know. Here's what they're hearing and here's what people are talking about, but not one full proposal of this is what it's going to be is going to be sent to them. And without that information, everything Devin Dubnik says is 100% on, on the, uh, you know, correct. I do think that logistically, though, before you go and you throw
0: out a full proposal, you need to know how many teams are going to be involved with it. I mean, we're, we were like, what, a week ago, we said, well, I guess it is possible it stands to reason that 31 teams are going to have to be accounted for. Are, we, are the players going to be against it and only want to have a 16-team playoff? Now you have the, at least you have the solid number, 24 teams. Now you start to plan the logistics around it. That might, have, that might in some way, shape, or form influence the amount of hub cities you need or the amount of hotels you need. You know, There's nothing to say that the league doesn't already have some kind of plan in place that they can now say, all right, we've at least whittled it down to this is the number of teams, this is how it's going to be affected, this is the timeline. We have to also come up with the idea of are we going to have the top four seeds from each conference in their own hub city doing their own thing at a different time? Is that going to run at the same time as the rest of the play-in tournament, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. I think that there's a lot more groundwork that's already been laid behind the scenes on the NHL side of things. And I have to assume that the NHLPA in some way, shape, or form has had a significant hand in figuring out what this is going to look like. Have I been at the negotiating table? No, I would say that I think you and I are both intelligent enough to know that when you go into a negotiation, most of the time, you don't take the entirety of your negotiating squad the entire time. As you mentioned, there's the idea of the caucus. There's the the idea of the side. Sometimes you only send in two reps or three reps. And I think at the end of the day, what's going to happen is we're going to get maybe, let's say, five guys, five from the league, five from the NHLPA, include the attorneys, whatever you want it to look like. But eventually, you are going to have a small group that's going to make the decision on the final proposal that they're going to take back. And they're going to have a significant sway in how this goes down so while you know it all sounds great and i think the points that were made are fair and sound i just don't believe that those conversations haven't been had in some way shape or form and maybe they haven't been had with him but i have to imagine that they've been had with donald fear and gary bettman that those two if nothing
2: else have definitely had to work together on something i disagree okay i disagree and the reason i disagree is i'll give you another example is look at baseball and look at what ha- what happened there like they th- they thought that they had some kind of agreement in place from march and then the and then the league tried to you know financially lowball the players a second time and the players pushed back like whoa in, in fairness though i think major league baseball
0: and their players association have had arguably the worst relationship in de- like for for
2: decades hello the the nhl canceled a season sure. and they locked out a second time in, what, eight, eight years ago Both with this current commissioner. They they haven't had the greatest relationship in in the NHL. Now, in recent years, it's been decent. All right? Give them them credit where credit's due. Donald Fear and Gary Bettman have been able to work well together um, in recent years. But that doesn't mean that that the animosity doesn't exist between the PA and the league. It certainly does. I'm saying the animosity with baseball, I believe, goes back much further. It's been
0: a long-held thing, 40, 50 years. Right. The NHL, like maybe, uh, you know, eight years ago, whatever with Batman. Sure. I do think it's important to, you know, as you just pointed out, mention the fact that like things have been significantly better in the last few years.
2: Maybe. Last few years, it's been better. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, it, it's, it's, it's trending. I it, think it's trending in the right direction. Like I think I mean, things are you, things are you, trending you, better. You lock out a season in nine, in half a season in ninety five. You cancel a season a decade later, mm-hmm. and eight years later, you lock out another half season. That's three work stoppages in the span of twenty years. It it doesn't really portray, you know, a unified a good front. I, I I get you. So. No, I don't I don't I don't I don't think that the league gives the players association as much detail as you think they do. I think that they I think they give them a little bit, they give them crumbs. They give them, you know, they'll leak some stuff to them. They'll say, you know, the things that they're comfortable with, hey, here's what we're thinking and we need your take on it, blah blah blah. But they're ultimately going to try and push their own agenda because they're not making any gate revenue yeah. so ultimately the finances are going to come down to I mean it's interesting to hear Dubnik say the testing and who's paying for it yeah I, I thought that was a real interesting line because it's almost suggesting that the league might say the players have to share in the cost maybe. I mean I just think that the I don't think that the league gives the players as as much information as, as you you want them to yeah maybe they don't I don't know. So not, I got some, more, some
0: more information. It. I'm in that, not in that room. Is that yeah. why you've been on your phone? You getting some info? What do you got? Yeah, Tell I got me. Some, what, come on. Nobody drop can, the, nobody can the, see this, but you. I can see it. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, We've had so some th- awkward pauses in our show that we don't usually have. So it's <laughs> Anthony. Anthony's like Adam Schefter
2: right now. Just sitting there. So no, Bob McKenzie mm-hmm. uh, says, uh, he puts out uh, just spitballing here. This has to do with the draft, which is tied to this whole thing. Yeah. Um I love this. Just spitballing here, but you could conceivably have a 15-team draft lottery where you know the names of the first seven entrants who are the seven teams that, that wouldn't make the playoffs but have only slot numbers representing 8 through 15. Conduct, conduct the draft lottery as per normal with the results being the results. There would be a lot of unanswered questions here. Would the lottery just be for the number one pick or would it be for the numbers one, two, and three picks like normal? Again, who knows? Either way, it is possible to conduct a late-June lottery and determine the order selection for the first 15 picks, except for the fact you would have to fill in the eight blanks at a later date after the play-in rounds are completed and assuming the losers of those series are indeed lottery teams. If so, there could be a second lottery draw to assign those eight teams the vacant slots. Imagine the possibilities of one of the eight nameless teams were to win the lottery in late June and secure number one overall. The sixteen teams participating in the play-in would know that if they lose the play-in, they might have a shot at number one. In the meantime, the seven teams not part of the uh, RTP would at least by late June exactly uh, know exactly what slots they're in, you know, in play for the actual draft. Yeah. Whenever it's held at this point, he says, though, the sense seems to be that it won't be until until the Stanley cup has been awarded mm-hmm. and the 2019, 2020 season is officially over. So lots of food for thought. And just to be clear, as he said, if, if he knew how much, if any of what this, what has been discussed here was fact-based he'd reported as such, he's not reporting it as fact-based he'd like to think they're going to know a lot more on all fronts in the next 24 to 48 hours it means there's leaks on
0: both side and neither side wants to corroborate the other yep, side. that's exactly that's exactly what it's it exactly what it is just,
2: you which read is, that one right <laughs> which
0: is which is like totally totally fine totally understandable it's just like come on yeah come on um yeah. look i think there's always going to be a, a hopeful optimist side of things that i like to take and there's always the eternal experience based quasi pessimistic view the show me show me now kind of thing yeah. uh, that, that you take. I think we can both agree that getting, getting the sport back up and running would do a heck of a lot of good for a lot of people. And so the hope is going to obviously be that the, the two sides are able to come to some kind of agreement. I have no idea what it looks like. There are people that get paid far more money than you and I do to figure it out. And yes. hopefully, hopefully, by the time we do a show next week, we'll have a much better idea of what, what that could look like. They are discussing, though, that phase two could begin early in June, though the way that they had it set up is that uh, only six players to a team facility at a time, no coaches, no equipment people on the ice at the same time. I mean, we're talking about baby steps. So I know that there were some people who you know, took the initial news and said, all right, that means training camp's going to start next week, the final week of May. And we should be ready to go by the first week of July with hockey. It's like, no, that won't happen. Right. I think we're still kind of along the lines, if we're optimistic here, if things are going to break the way that we hope they would break, you're probably looking at a second week of July return to camp or maybe – some kind of like tune up. Like I still don't know how they do this without a tune up game. It's not going to be like a preseason, but I, I don't know how you get these guys. And say so try to get up to game speed just, just through practice. Like I, I wonder if there's going to be like well, close scrimmages. Say, like I really
2: don't know. I will say it's, it's kind of comparable to when they have the world cup of hockey right okay because they have that in the summer i don't want to compare it to the olympics because the olympics is mid-season mm-hmm. and so they're already been playing games right so they're already in game shape and they just jump into the games with a bunch of players that they've not practiced with and all of a sudden now you're playing for a gold medal right yeah. so that's that's kind of a, a you know a crazy th- situation but at least they're in game shape um but I think that if you if you compare it to the World Cup of hockey, which is usually before the season starts in August and September, I think that's a fair comparison. And they do they do try and play some some kinds of scrimmage games. I wonder if they'll if they'll you know play scrimmage games against my, the minor league team, kind of thing. Like have something like that as opposed to playing each uh-huh. other. The problem Um, is
0: though that the eight, well, I mean, it's, it's going to be similar though, right? Because if you're going to have them, I I don't see the playing against the minor team one, because the HL season is canceled and two, because do you really want to then go and introduce that many more people into the bubble, right? You would think that they would want to limit the number of people. I don't see that as a, as a possible alternative, right? Because then you're almost doubling the amount of, of players in that, that bubble, even if it's for the first couple of weeks, you're adding so many more variables into this. No, no, thing. I don't
2: think, I don't think you're talking about playing them in a bubble. I think, I think that this is at your training facilities.
0: No, no, I, I'm saying that that to me is within the general bubble of, of whatever the hub city is. And if the idea here is going to be anything like what the NBA is apparently considering with Disney and, and such, like, I don't know why you would open this up to having 20, 30, 40 more people depending on equipment managers and and coaches and everything to have. The phantoms, for example, you know, hanging around the flyers. Like I don't see it, and maybe I'm wrong.
2: Like they have maybe- to, but they have to have these players, Russ. They have to because of injury and playoff depth and everything else. They're sure. going to have to expand. We'll have to have some it of them might, might, might not be. It might not be 45 guys, but you might see, you know, an extra. I think you'll I mean, see
0: expanded rosters. Well, yeah, well not. Yeah. For, I mean,
2: not not for game nights. Obviously, no. But, but- I
0: think, yeah, but through through the, the buildup you're gonna I have to.
2: so each team has 50 contracts right mm-hmm. yep and in the playoffs every year you're allowed to have as many guys as you want on your black aces which are your practice players emergency players if somebody gets hurt um usually the black aces teams usually have like two goalies another you know four defensemen um and probably like another you know five or six forwards, right? So you're, you're talking about another 10, 12 guys. I think that that's a, a fair assessment that these teams are going to have this right from the jump. So you're probably looking at, th- you know, between 35 and 40 total. So you could have, you know, internal games for sure.
0: I guess so. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I guess it just depends on how many guys you're going to have them, have the teams take along. I would just think that you're trying to limit it as much as you can. But these are unprecedented times. Oh, stop it. I hate it so much. I really do. Yeah. All, the, all these companies that continue to like reframe their commercials in these unprecedented times. We've never seen times like these. And now it's like we've started to turn the page to, as we begin to exit these unprecedented times, we're here with you. It's, it's driving me nuts. It, it yeah. honestly has driven me to the point of insanity.
1: Mm,
0: absolutely. All right. So I have good news for you. You have good news for me? I have good news for you. I actually have good news on a few fronts. I don't know which, which of the fronts you would like me to go with first. Um, but what I can tell you is we've seen a, a, an uptick in our Facebook following, Facebook.com yeah. slash snow We've seen an uptick on Twitter at snow the goalie. We've seen an uptick in reviews that have been left, five-star reviews. And I say this all the time, but nothing makes Anthony Sanfilippo smile quite like a fresh, crisp five-star review. You know, some people think, you know, a $20 bill would make Mr. Sanfilippo happy. No, no, no. He's a high roller, $20 bills. He sneezes. He wipes his keister with a $20 bill. No, no, no. You know, what brings (laughs) this man real joy. It's a five-star review. And, and Anthony, I think you saw this, but uh we picked up not one, not two, but three, three five-star reviews in awesome. the last week. And it's funny because I think we hit like a, a week long uh a week long drought, like two weeks ago. And we had read three of them off. And then the next week I was like, all right, let's see how many more we get. And we didn't get any new ones. I was like, oh man, Anthony's gonna be so sad. And we came on and And you were really bummed out. So I'm happy to report that we have three new five-star reviews. And I think it's time. You ready to get into them, friend? Yes, let's hear them. All right. First one is from Lee C. Five stars, Ken Hitchcock interview. The Ken Hitchcock interview was very informative, especially talking about his Flyers years and interactions with younger players that he got a bad rap for handling like Justin Williams. Great job, guys. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Lee.
2: Next one. It was a a great interview. I mean, Hitch was was awesome.
0: He was fantastic. Oh, is she? Uh, The next one is from BP1203. Five stars. Awesome podcast. Two exclamation points. One wasn't sufficient. Needed two. Great work. Great insight. Great interviews. Three exclamation points. My two weekly must listens are you guys and Chicklets. Well, you know what? I don't blame you. Chicklets, National Podcast, Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast. I don't know
2: where else you would go. It's interesting you you mentioned the uh exclamation points. Is that kind of like the theory from the office when you have the dot 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 dot? You know, like three dots is normal, four dots is normal.
0: Five
2: five means oh, there's something more there. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know. I was about to do like a really bad I
0: uh I shouldn't do it. I'm gonna get people thinking that I'm being like political, so I won't do
2: it. Are we going to do another Uh, Trump impression?
0: No, no, no. Uh, Five stars, non-biased Flyers news. This one is from G-D-G-T-Y-D-W-F-U-G-F-E-H-V. I don't know how you do that. Did you fall asleep on the keyboard as you came up with it? Doesn't matter. Five-star review. We love it. Non-biased Flyers news. The best non-biased Flyers podcast. My favorite podcast on the Flyers and best interviews. Great stories. Keep bringing on the alums for interviews. Anthony, I keep hearing... People say that they think there are, at least, maybe there is one other Flyers podcast, or there maybe are others. And to quote Joe Biden, if you can't figure out the difference between this podcast and another Flyers podcast, then you ain't orange and black fans, is what I'm saying, huh? See what I did there? See? All right, and this is our last episode of Snow the goalie <laughs> only Flyers
2: podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah, hey, but like Russ. That? You know, I, so what, it, it's interesting that this uh, alphabet soup person thank you for the time <laughs> review um that they said um keep bringing on the alumni oh. so so we're going to sure. um we've been we've been teasing um our next guest uh so after you enjoy tonight's episode with you know Dave Pullen, um next week's guest will be drum roll do you have the drum roll or no do you remember don't have what's, do about. you remember what the uh what the clue was last week? It's the perfect time of year to have him on. I, did I think say you that. said, or something. I did. Something, I, did. I something said, akin to that, right? Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah.
2: No drum roll. <laughs> okay. There it is. Uh, Philadelphia Flyers, Mr. Playoffs, Danny Briere.
0: Boom. Boom, 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 boom. I'll have the soundboard for next week.
2: Yes. Danny Breer will be joining us for next week's episode, uh, which will come out on June 1st. So be sure to, uh, you know, after, after you listen to this one all the way through, um, which is going to take you all week considering this one's going to be over two hours for sure. Um, Sorry. Uh, no don't don't apologize it's (laughs) a great great interview what are you gonna do um we're gonna have danny briere uh talking about his career and his time with the flyers and, and what he's doing now um kind of sort of working still with the organization running the main mariners of the echl up in uh up in portland maine so i
0: i do want to give a shout out and i i'm trying to find it really quickly in my uh in my mentions i i think it was justin kent super fan of this show and the press row show, Justin Kent. And I wanted to find the exact wording. I can't find it.
2: You don't, um, he said you don't have to be a boy genius.
0: Oh, that's right. Because you mentioned about how you were the boy genius. Right. Uh, uh, that was your old email. Correct. Which he said, you from, don't which have to be from a yeah.
2: karaoke or not karaoke a uh, night. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You, you don't have to be a joy, a joy, a boy genius to figure out that the June 1st, guest is danny briere i'll tell you i i'm excited and i know i said before that like i try not to fanboy we had the the, uh, interview that we did over a year ago with scott hartnell down in the bowels of wells fargo center and that was a really cool moment mike knuble i was over the moon to get to chat with danny freaking briere ladies and gentlemen listen there's only one thing to do you let everybody in your life know who's a Flyers fan. I'm talking from your best friend growing up to your frenemy who stole your boyfriend to the guy who lives down the street to some homeless dude who happens to have an iPhone. Get that man a meal and like make sure he subscribes to Snow the Goalie and leaves a five-star review. Thank you. I'm talking to your niece and nephew, your aunt and uncle, your grandparents. I don't care who. You let them know that Danny Breer is going to be on this podcast June 1st, and it is going to be a must-listen episode. That's all I have to say. And by the way, you know, make sure that they go and give us a like over on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, at AntSanPhilly, at Joy on Broad, at Snow the Goalie. And like I said, we're going to have the, uh, the other video interviews going up on the Crossing Broad YouTube channel at some point soon. Anthony, it might be the most excited I've been for any interview that we've done. Are you excited?
2: So, as you know, Russ, um, I have a very cl- I have a close relationship with, with Danny. Mm-hmm. So, I'm excited because I know how he'll be on the show. Mm-hmm. I know he'll be really open and honest with us, maybe more so than most. I mean, he's great in every interview. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, knowing him as well as I do and as personally as I do, I have a feeling we're going to get some really great stories out of Danny. Um, so it'll be a lot of, it'll be a lot of fun to have him on and some laughs and he's great. I mean, I, he's another guy he's, he's, he's not going to be as, uh, as funny over the top, you know, as we've had with guys like Deneen and, and with guys like Poolin, but he's going to be really insightful and, uh, just really a great conversationalist. I mean, that's just—he's one of the all-timers. I've, I've, if I had to rank my top five guys that I covered in professional sports in 20 years that I've been doing this, Danny's—I mean, he might be number one. It's close. I mean, it's one-one-a. I mean, he's right up there. So, just—just um, just a, a great guy, and I think everybody will love hearing from him. It's going to be fantastic. I'm very, very, very,
0: very, very excited to have him on. Um, anything else you wanted to touch on? Nope. Uh, I think the episode is going to end up going out on Tuesday. We're recording this part on Memorial day. And I got into it with a couple of people on Twitter today because I mentioned the fact that I think it's a shame that we didn't have a way to honor the vets today. And I got told, well, you know what? It's, it's really not about the vets today. I had multiple people say today's not about the veterans, which I don't have a good way to say this, but to me, that's absolute BS and veterans day. And Memorial Day, to me, are linked. They have always been. They always will be. It's really supposed to be a day that we sit back and reflect and we appreciate those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. But it is also important to point out that there are many vets in this country who have served with the the Fallen, some who were there at that moment. And even more importantly, uh, or arguably as important, more however you want to do it, there are families that are torn apart and there are families that things like Memorial Day parades, things like having ceremonies at uh, cemeteries where you go and you can you know, pay your respects, not only to the fallen, but to their families who also had to pay that ultimate sacrifice. Uh, I, I think today, and, and I speak from that little bit of experience about my cousin, I think I brought that up on the show, was killed in Afghanistan and and not being able to go and pay that kind of tribute is truly like a, it was the first time in the entire quarantine that I have been broken. And, and I think it's a shame that uh, we didn't get to have those kind of moments uh, to show our appreciation for, for the, the fallen and for the vets and their families. So you're probably going to hear the episode on Tuesday. And, and far too often, we have uh, moments that we thank the vets on that day. And then the next day, we turn the page and, and, and we move on with our day. I request that if you're listening to this on Tuesday, you take a moment and you think about them and and that's that. So uh, for Anthony at Aunt San Philly, I'm Russ, at Joy on Broad. We'll be back next week with a very special episode. The hype will be so real. Danny Briere, tell your friends, tell your family. The only Flyers podcast.